1: The Invesco QQQ Legacy Classic is back on TNT. That
2: was fun. (laughs) If you're wondering why we're tired this morning. (laughs) Oh, wait, are we on the air?
3: Yep. Real.
4: How are you guys doing?
2: It was an awesome game. I feel like energized by stuff like that. You
4: were the last holdout.
2: In Alabama, there's a whole thing. In the fourth quarter, everyone holds their fours up because you don't leave the game in the fourth quarter. It's a big thing with Nick Saban. He does not like when fans leave the game. And so last night, I could not leave early. It's like like in my soul. I was like... (laughs) And you were the first to go.
3: You're I was like, like <laughs> I gotta go. Peace out. So much fun. Thanks, boss. Yeah, yeah I think for we taking to us into the game last night.
4: So, uh, thank you so much. We had fun last night. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, everybody. That was a Knicks Lakers game. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that. But now we have to get to the news because there is a lot going on uh, today. Tyree Nichols' life will be celebrated in Memphis as the city prepares. For his funeral. Authorities also say that even more videos are set to be released. What will the body cam reveal this time? Plus this.
5: I would not run if President Trump ran.
3: That was then. This is now quite an about-face first. Former Governor Nikki Haley was not going to challenge Donald Trump. Now she is when she plans to make her big 2024 announcement as she positions herself against her former boss. And this
6: if asked by all relevant parties, I'll certainly consider it. Uh, but I'm I'm not pushing myself in.
2: A potential mediator between Russia and Ukraine. That's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who sat down for an interview with Jake Tapper, his first interview with CNN since he has taken office again. We have more on that exclusive ahead.
4: Yeah, a very wide-ranging interview. Lots to get to. We're going to begin in Memphis, where the parents of Tyree Nichols are demanding justice as they prepare to bury their son... The funeral set to begin just hours from now as the fallout over the brutal police beating keeps growing. CNN has obtained the initial police report, which paints a vastly different picture from what we saw on that horrific video. CNN has also learned the city of Memphis is preparing to release even more videos. Civil rights leaders and Vice President Kamala Harris set to attend Tyree's funeral. Last night, Tyree's family spoke at, a, at the same sanctuary where the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his final mountaintop speech on the eve of his assassination in Memphis.
7: Keep fighting for justice for our son and my family. Yes. Protect my wife because she's very fragile right we got now. It. Yeah. We need that for her. Trust me. And we've got to stay strong for her. Mm-hmm. So...
4: Justice
8: for, Tyree.
4: Justice, for
9: Tyree.
4: Justice, for Tyree. Justice 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 for Tyree. And CNN's Ryan Young is covering the story for us. He's live in Memphis right now outside of the church. Good morning, Ryan. As we prepare for Tyree's funeral, there are a lot of developments in this case. What can you tell us?
10: Yeah, absolutely. There's still a lot of pain in this community. People are asking questions about the police department and that initial incident report because it, in that incident report, it doesn't talk about the escalation of force use against Tyree. Tyree Nichols to be laid to rest later this morning. His funeral will be held at the Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church in Memphis. Last night, Nichols' family was joined by national clergy and Reverend Al Sharpton at the Mason Temple. The same site Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his last speech, I've been to the mountaintop, the day before his assassination in April 1968. The need for
11: justice has brought us here again.
10: Sharpton, who is scheduled to give the eulogy at Nichols' funeral, called for police reform.
7: We are going to continue to fight this fight around police brutality and killing until we get federal laws changed. What happened to Tyree is a disgrace to this country. We're all Tyree now. That's right. right. And we're all gonna stand up with this family. That's right.
10: This, as we are learning more videos, are set to be released from the investigation of Nichols' death. And we are seeing, for the first time, a picture of the initial police report filed just hours after the traffic stop that says Nichols was pulled over for reckless driving. The report contradicts police video released last week. It states Nichols started to fight with officers and says he was grabbing for Detective Martin's gun. Further stating he began actively resisting and pulling the duty belts and grabbing Officer Smith by his vest. The report lists one of the officers as a victim. The report does not mention the officers punching and kicking Nichols. Officers are seen discussing this at the scene.
11: Hit me. Did
10: he, he Martin Gunn? Additionally, personnel files obtained by CNN show that several of the Memphis cops charged in connection to Tyree Nichols' death have histories of minor department violations, including Emmett Martin, who joined the Memphis Police Department in 2018 and had two separate suspensions. Nichols' family wants these officers held accountable
7: keep fighting for justice for our son and my family i've been fighting my whole life fighting my whole life and the one fight that i need to be at i wasn't here mm-hmm. you know and um at the end of the day i'm never going to forgive my brother
10: don this really hasn't been a big impact on this city i talked to two police officers off camera yesterday here in memphis and they tell me this has totally changed the way they even see policing in their own city. They know they're going to have to do a lot of work with the community. They're asking some of the same questions about what's going to happen next because obviously this investigation is still ongoing and we're still learning new details as the days go on. Considering
4: Don. the eul- eulogy for George Floyd, all eyes will be on Memphis to see what and hear uh, what the Reverend Al Sharpton has to say about Tyree Nichols. Thank you I appreciate that, Ryan Young in Memphis.
3: All right. The manhunt in Oregon for a suspect accused of kidnapping and torturing a woman ended with Benjamin Foster dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound following an hours-long standoff on Tuesday night. Law enforcement officers had surrounded a property in Grants Pass, Oregon, where he was believed to be hiding under a house. It is the same home where a woman was found beaten, bound and unconscious last week. Authorities were concerned that he was using dating apps to try to find new victims.
2: All right. The stakes are high, expectations low for today's meeting between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the White House. They're going to sit down this afternoon. The president and the speaker have both essentially set their terms ahead of these talks on the debt ceiling. The goal is to break the current stalemate to avoid what could be a devastating financial default. But that's easier said than done. And no one knows that better than CNN's Lauren Fox, who is live for us on Capitol Hill this morning. You know, Lauren, this meeting's going to happen this afternoon, but what are we what are we really expecting to happen when McCarthy and Biden get in the same room with each other?
12: Well, I do think there is an important distinction, Caitlin, between a meeting and a negotiation. What you're going to see today is really a meeting of both the Speaker of the House and the President of the United States who are going to have to deal with complicated issues, not just on the debt ceiling, but on spending in the year ahead. So they need to begin this conversation. For the White House, they have drawn that red line. There are no negotiations. As part of an increase to the debt ceiling, they reiterated that repeatedly yesterday ahead of this meeting. Meanwhile, for Kevin McCarthy, he's been doing a lot of preparation, trying to make this more of a negotiation today. When he sits down with the president, he's been consulting with important chairmen, including Jason Smith of Ways and Means, as well as Patrick McHenry of Financial Services. He's also been talking, I'm told, to Newt Gingrich, the former House speaker who has extensive experience in these kinds of high stakes negotiations. Caitlin, Republicans are going to meet today at 9 a.m. as a conference to try to get their messaging all on the same page. But a lot of challenges, of course, going
2: into this meeting for Kevin McCarthy today. Yeah, namely where they are wanting these cuts to come from. Uh, Also today on Capitol Hill, Lauren, you're reporting that that vote to remove Congressman Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee could happen as soon as today. Does McCarthy now believe that he has the votes to actually successfully kick her off that committee?
12: Yeah, he does believe he has the votes, Caitlin. And this comes after a hard-fought negotiation with some of his members who are now feeling more comfortable because they say there is due process language including, included in this resolution. Victoria Sparks yesterday One of the holdouts telling me she is now comfortable with voting to oust Ilhan Omar from committee. But obviously, this took way longer than many people expected. This was supposed to be a simple vote for Republicans. It has proved complicated once again because of this narrow
2: majority. Yeah, and notable that it was seen as that emergency resolution last night, given what we saw during the speaker's fight over needing 72 hours. Lauren Fox, thank you so much. We'll check in with you back this morning.
3: All right, and now this.
2: When you're
13: looking at a run for president, you look at two things. You first look at, does the current situation push for new leadership? The second question is, am I that person that could be that new leader? Yes, we need to go in a new direction. And can I be that leader? Yes, I think I can be that leader.
3: Check and check. That is former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley nearly two weeks ago giving a a clear pitch on her qualifications To be president of the United States, now she's making it official. A source familiar with her plans says she will announce her bid on February 15th in Charleston. Let's go to our Kylie Atwood. She is live in D.C. Uh, So not only the first Republican to challenge Donald Trump officially, but someone who said she would never do that.
14: Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is major news overnight because we've all been waiting. After we saw that Fox News interview where she clearly indicated that she believed that she is a good person to run to be president in 2024, we were all waiting to see when she would jump into this race because as of now, it's going to be a one-on-one competition between her and the former vice president. She believes that she can bring new leadership to the table. But as you said, she has said in the past that she wouldn't run if the former president ran. Let's just listen to how she phrase that. He
2: runs again in 2024.
15: Will you support him? Yes. If he decides that he's going to run, would that preclude any sort of run that you would possibly make yourself?
5: I would not run if President Trump ran. And I would talk to him about it. You know, I mean, that's something that we'll have a conversation about at some point if that decision is something that has to be made.
14: And she had that conversation with him in recent days. The former president told reporters over the weekend that Nikki Haley gave him a call saying that she was considering jumping into the race, and he told her that she should do it. So clearly they had that conversation. This announcement is expected on February 15th in Charleston, South Carolina.
3: Kylie, big news, as you said, overnight. Thanks very much for that. Certainly
4: I don't know. Is it surprising news considering the interviews she was hinting at in the Fox News interviews that you played that she was going uh, to run for president? But the problem that she has is Donald Trump. And I think the thing that is good for her possibly is Donald Trump. So there's a contradiction there. She's going to have to answer some questions about it. But people like her because she was in his cabinet.
3: What do you think? You're covering the Trump White House during this and the way also that she, you know, Ended her role in in the Trump White House.
2: I mean, it's going to be tough for any of these people who worked for him to run for office. I mean, obviously, Mike Pence is another person we're expecting. Mike Pompeo as well. Now Nikki Haley seems like she's going to be the first one to actually get in the race and actually put her name in the ring first since Trump. She'd be the only other Republican running. I think that's where it's going to be difficult for her. Because one question that I heard from people yesterday after this broke in the Post and Courier, and kudos to them for breaking this, is that they were asking, you know, you don't really want to be the only one that he's going after. And that is going to be the situation if she does announce as soon as Kylie is reporting on February 15th. And so I think that's going to be the challenge. It's not that she already knew that this was going to be the challenge with Trump. When it's just the two of them, uh, that's going to be the focus. But she
4: spoke to him and he said, you know, I encourage It is reported he encouraged her to he
2: get, said that get, to, to get
4: into the race. Yeah. But uh, she's the only one for now. And I think to other people who want to get in the race, it's like finally it gives it, it offers them cover because now they can say, well, she's in the race and I'm not the only one. And she, she'll she take the initial heat and then they'll be able to come along and then they'll have to take the heat, of
2: course. Yeah, And he may have told her that she should get in the race. But Trump has said that no Republicans should yeah. challenge him for this <laughs> nomination. That's what I've been reporting. Did so. he mean it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. OK. Um, Also this morning, Russia says it is preparing for a maximum escalation of the war in Ukraine in the coming weeks. That is according to a top Ukrainian national security official who says his country is not excluding any scenario in the next two to three weeks. He says the Russians are gathering materials, doing drills in preparation for what could come next. All of this is the context for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. What he told Jake Tapper when he said he would consider serving potentially as a mediator for Russia and Ukraine but not unless he is asked.
6: If I'm asked by both sides, and frankly if I'm asked by the United States, because I think you know you can't have too many uh, cooks in the kitchen. If asked by all relevant parties, I'll certainly consider it, uh, but I'm, I'm not pushing myself in. I think this is of monumental importance because I think the peace of the world is at stake.
4: There's a lot to discuss with this. Netanyahu went on to make the case that Israel is helping Ukraine right now by attacking Iranian weapons productions that are being used to attack Ukraine. But he refused to acknowledge whether Israel was behind drone attacks on an Iranian military plant over the weekend. Look.
16: Did Israel carry out this strike in Iran over the weekend?
6: I never talk about specific operations, with the exception, I think, of our raid on Iran's secret nuclear archive. And every time some explosion takes place in the Middle East, you know, Israel is, uh, uh, is blamed or given responsibility. Sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. But I will say that there is, you're right, there is an overriding mission that I have. And I came back and ran in these elections and was elected the sixth time, uh, for the sixth time, because I have three overriding goals. One is to thwart Iran's nuclear ambitions. The second is to expand the peace dramatically to end the Arab-Israeli conflict as a lead into the ending the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the third is to further boost Israel's incredible economy. But the first is first. The first is Iran. And I will only say this, that I will do everything in my power as Israel's prime minister to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear arsenal that is expressly directed at annihilating us. And they also say not only death to Israel, but death to America.
4: Back with us now, Kylie Atwood at uh, the State Department. What has the State Department, Kylie, said about these attacks?
14: Well, listen, the State Department also hasn't said anything really about these attacks, not confirming or denying that Israel was behind them. But I do think the fact that uh, the prime minister is not coming out and saying that Israel wasn't behind them is a pretty good indication that they were, because these are the types of things that we have seen Israel do against Iran's military, against Iran's uh, building nuclear program in the past. And this is one thing where the Biden administration and where Israel are actually on pretty similar pages right now, because we saw that Iran nuclear deal uh, fall apart. There have been no real efforts to revive that deal. And so both of these countries are watching Iran's nuclear program incredibly closely. The Secretary of State saying in Israel that the United States will do everything in its power to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon.
4: All right. Thank you, Kylie. Appreciate that. A two-second clip of audio is taking center stage in Alex Murdoch's double murder trial. What was it really a confession there? The defense team slowing it down for the court to hear more clearly. Plus,
17: I declined to answer the question. Same answer. Same answer. Same answer. Same answer. answer.
2: Former President Trump once suggested only guilty people and mobsters plead like the fifth. How could you forget that? But he just did it more than 400 times. We'll tell you more next.
4: I wonder what that says. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So here's a question. Did Alex Murdoch actually confess to murdering his own son? Or did an investigator simply mishear Murdoch while he was distraught and sobbing? Murdoch's defense team got the chance to grill that investigator during the double murder trial. And they slowed down the audio clip for the whole court to hear. So let's get some explanation here. Uh, I want to go now to Randy Kaye, following the trial, Walterboro, South Carolina is where she is this morning. Good morning to you. Uh, Randy, that investigator says uh, that he is sure about what he heard. How did that play out in court?
9: Yeah, Don, that investigator thought that he heard a confession from Alec Murdoch, and that would have taken place during this conversation that Murdoch had with investigators back on June 10th of 2021, just a few days after the murders. So as you said, they replayed that in court. The defense pressed this investigator on it, trying to get him to change his mind. It was a pretty dramatic moment as they slowed the tape down. Watch what happens.
0: According
18: to your testimony, he says, I did him so bad. That is what I understood him to say, yes, sir.
9: Alec Murdoch's defense lawyer, cross-examining a special investigator and witness for the prosecution. The goal, to clear up what he heard, or thought he heard Alec Murdoch say. That seemed to sound like a confession. When Alec was interviewed by investigators on June 10th, 2021, just a few days after his wife and son were murdered, he said this when talking about his son, Paul.
19: <laughs> it is just so bad, they did it so bad.
9: The witness, Special Agent Jeff Croft with SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, had told the court he thought Alec said, I did him so bad. But the defense suggested Alec actually said, they did him so bad.
18: Did you consider that to be some sort of confession on June the 10th? Again, it was something that we were definitely going to follow up on. Yes, sir. Why didn't you ask him right then and there when he said, I did him so bad? Why didn't you ask him, "What, what do you mean by that, Alec? Again, it was early in the investigation. So what were the things going through your mind when you heard or misheard, I did him so bad, I mean, like, I wasn't a good dad? I I spoiled him? Or I killed him? I mean, what was going through your mental note? There was a mental note that it was definitely something that we needed to follow up on and, and ask at a later time.
9: The defense replayed the part of the interview in question at regular speed. Then slowed it down to a third of the speed and played it again.
18: Your Honor, we'd like to play it again at one third speed.
19: This is so bad. This is so bad.
20: Did you
18: hear they then? No, sir, I did not. Okay. But you would agree the jury gets to decide what he, what he said on that tape. That's the best evidence. Yes, sir.
9: The defense also got that same witness to tell the jury that the murder weapon that killed Paul Murdoch was not one of the guns collected from Alex's gun room at the house. The witness said the ammunition wasn't a match either.
18: None of the shotguns that you brought yesterday, according to the ballistic report, your lab analysis fired the shots that killed Paul, correct? I do not have the lab report in front of me. Have you ever found the murder weapons? Not that I'm aware of, sir. And you didn't find any similar ammunition at Moselle on June the 8th or any time after that, correct? I did not, sir.
9: Still, John Bedingfield, Alec's second cousin and a captain with the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, also testified for the state. He told the jury he built AR style rifles for Alec Murdoch, the same type of rifle the prosecution says was used at the murder scene.
15: How many blackouts?
21: AR-style rifles, did you make for Alec Murdoch? Three. And
10: when was that last one made? 2018. April? April of 2018.
9: And when court resumes today in just a few hours, a computer crimes expert who was testifying for the state will be back on the stand. He did forensics, done on Maggie Murdoch's phone, and he said it was moved long after she was dead, that the camera tried to open for just one second for facial recognition, but it wasn't Maggie's face, so it didn't open Also, he said there were five missed calls from Alec Murdoch and two text messages long after she was dead. One said, call me, babe. So now the jury will have to make some sense of that,
4: Don. This is all fascinating. Randy Kay, thank you this morning. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm.
3: Well, we've learned the FBI searched President Biden's former think tank office after his aides found classified documents there, what it could mean for the special counsel's investigation. Plus this.
21: So, Mr. Trump, I take it you are, are not going to answer any questions about your preparation today with your counsel. Is that correct?
17: I mean, should I say this or should I respond to that?
2: New video showing former President Trump, who once said only the mob takes the fifth, doing just that actually more than 400 times in his deposition with New York Att- Attorney General Letitia James. You see in New York there this morning, we also are getting new video this morning showing for President Trump being questioned under oath in New York's $250 million fraud lawsuit against him, his company, and three of his children. He pled the fifth more than 400 times during that deposition, at the beginning explaining why he was doing so.
17: Anyone in my position not taking the Fifth Amendment would be a fool, an absolute fool. Under the advice of my counsel and For all of the above reasons, I respectfully decline to answer the questions under the rights and privileges afforded to every citizen under the United States Constitution. This will be my answer to any further questions.
2: And he meant that. Here's a sampling of how that deposition went.
17: I decline to answer the question. I decline to answer the question. Same answer, 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 same answer.
2: Quite a difference from what we saw Trump on the campaign trail in 2016 and what he said about people who plead the fifth.
17: The mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the fifth amendment? When you have your staff taking the fifth amendment, taking the fifth, so they're not prosecuted. When you have the man that set up the illegal server taking the fifth, I think it's disgraceful. Have you seen what's going on in front of Congress? Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment. Horrible.
3: Horrible. But, you know, there's the tape.
4: Here's the interesting part. He's right about anyone in his position would be a fool not to take the Fifth Amendment, except you have his prior history of saying that the Fifth Amendment... He's insinuating that it makes you guilty and a mob figure, so there's a contradiction there. But it's if, always if you were... good
3: when you can see the video of these depositions.
4: Yeah. But you, you know, you went to law school. Wouldn't you advise your client to take <laughs> My the? My God, Amendment? I does went for was... a
3: year. I don't have a full JD, and but I'm not a criminal defense attorney. <laughs> does that
4: necessarily mean guilt, <laughs> though, by taking the Fifth Amendment? You're just protecting your rights, right?
3: Well, that is what the former president said. Uh, oh, you're, yeah. Well, people take the Fifth for various reasons. Yeah, <laughs> that's all you'll say. This morning, we are learning, uh, but in a serious turn here, we are learning a lot more about, you know, the Biden classified document search. What we've learned this morning is that the FBI actually searched President Biden's former Washington think tank office in November. This is after his team notified the National Archives that they found classified documents there. So this is another search, and one by the FBI. A Justice Department official tells CNN that search was done with the cooperation of the Biden legal team. Our Paula Reed joins us now. What I read from this—tell me if I'm right here—is the big picture here is we didn't know about this one either, right? Exactly. This raises a lot of questions about just how
15: transparent the president's lawyers and the Justice Department are being about everything that has transpired here. Because, Poppy, here's what we've learned about this, quote, search from our reporting. It, it was less of a search and more of a visit to an empty office. It was a standard step that you'd take anytime classified materials are uncovered. This happened a few days after the Justice Department first learned about these documents. They went with the permission of Biden attorneys to this office. But we've learned that all the documents by that point had been handed over to the archives. So it was a largely empty office with just some furniture. But again, we're told by former Justice Department officials, this is a standard thing that you do to just assess the location and make sure there aren't any other documents or any other problems that would complicate this. We know a few days later, the attorney general asked a U.S. attorney to conduct a review and decide if a special counsel should be appointed. And he said, yes, absolutely. They need a special counsel. And
3: we've learned that he starts as soon as today. Do you have any reporting on why the Biden legal team did not disclose this search right away it was in November?
15: It's a big question, Poppy. They're not commenting. Also questions for the Justice Department. While they do not traditionally always share every investigative step that they take, they did take unusual steps here. They held a press conference. The attorney general offered an almost unprecedented timeline of everything that had happened here. And that was an opportunity, again, to put everything out on the table. Part of why he did that timeline was to clean up some of the incomplete statements made by the president's attorneys about how much classified material had been found. He did reference an assessment that is conducted. This search, this visit was part of that assessment. But again, a lot of questions about transparency and why they're not getting out ahead of these facts and instead just letting it leak. Drip, drip, drip.
3: Right. It seems like again and again not getting out ahead with things they could just, you know, tell us have happened. Paula, thanks very much. In battle, Congressman George Santos says he is going to, going to at least temporarily step down from his committee assignments. Details on how he came to that decision ahead.
4: Plus, a new study says that eating ultra processed foods may be linked to an increased risk of cancer. What you need to know straight ahead.
2: In battle, Republican Congressman George Santos has now decided to step aside, step down from his committee assignments in the House with the spotlight on the lies that he's told about his life. In recent days, he's taken more of a combative approach to the backlash, even making excuses for his behavior.
22: And I know that a lot of people want to create this narrative that I, I faked my way to Congress, which is absolutely categorically false. Um, I've worked hard, I've built, ground up a career Um, through experience and through knowledge and through uh, self-education. And, you know, I think it's amazing that I have to sit here and be spoken down to on a regular basis yet again by the media.
2: Being spoken down to by the media. Here's the truth about George Santos. He did fake his way to Congress. He did not build the career that he claims he did. He did not have the experiences that he claims he had. Look at this moment when he was pressed about apologizing.
22: I've made my sincere apology multiple times. I, I earlier said it, that I thoroughly apologize for lying about my education and embellishing the resume. I've made that very, very clear. Uh, I, I don't know what more can, can be said other than admitting. Is there anything more humbling and humiliating than admitting that on national television, Caitlin?
2: A new poll shows that 78 percent of the voters in his district believe he should resign from Congress. Joining us now to talk about that interview is CNN media analyst and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher, along with our CNN political commentator and columnist for New York Magazine, Errol Lewis. Errol, you have actually interviewed George Santos, so uh, I'm going to start with you because you know him, you've interacted with him. What do you make of what he's saying in this interview now that he's decided to temporarily? Step aside from these committees. It's,
16: it's a good idea for him to step down because he's got a cascading number of legal problems. They really require his full attention. So just on that level, it's probably a good idea. Maybe a little bit less of a distraction, politically speaking. Um, he got away with murder in that interview, I have to tell you. I mean, he said, oh, I'm sorry that I said I had a college degree when I never attended the college. That's the least of it. There <laughs> yeah. are so many other obvious fabrications that have come to light. That he didn't even acknowledge, saying that his grandparents were Holocaust survivors, saying that his mother died on 9-11 in the World Trade Center when she wasn't even in the country at the time, saying that he worked at Goldman Sachs when he never worked there. On and on and on and on. Um, This is a, a real serious problem. I'm not sure he even personally recognizes the depth of the deception, which really accounts for the fact that people have said this is not just some politician. Who embellished a little bit or who broke a couple of promises this is some other thing altogether uh, which is why so many people in his own district have said we don't want this guy to be our congressman anymore
3: can we listen to him saying it's never basically it's never going to happen again learn his lesson here's that part
22: and i've learned my lesson and you can guarantee i can guarantee you that from now on anything and everything is always going to be above board it's largely always been above board. I'm just going to go the extra step now to double check, cross-reference everything.
3: I just have so many thoughts, but I'm more interested <laughs> in your, how do you cross-reference your own lies? Like you either tell the truth or you don't.
13: It's just too little too late is the problem. Like even if Errol Lewis, or Errol Lewis, oh my gosh, even if George <laughs> Santos, never, never in a million years, but even if George Santos were to try to pursue his run in Congress, he doesn't have the support of anyone anymore. He's built this entire campaign on lies. Now he's in, he doesn't have Republicans allied with him. He doesn't have his district allied with him. He doesn't have Democrats allied with him. So he can't be effective. And the whole time in that interview, he kept saying, Well, I was elected to do a job and I'm here to do the job. You're not going to be able to do the job because nobody wants to work with you and no one trusts you anymore.
4: Full transparency. So I said, why are you stepping away from your committee assignments? And he says, I'm not stepping away. I'm reserving my seats to be taken at a later date while these distractions are resolved. I'll continue to work on constituent services and putting bills together. How is he going to do that considering everything that you just said? How is that possible?
13: It's not possible. You need... You know, to be able to work across the aisle, you need to be able to work with your own party. And I think the biggest challenge for him is that at this point, he's a fun thing to cover. The media loves to take a look at every single one of these missteps and every single one of these controversies. And so it's going to be hard for him to ever weed himself out of the position
2: that he's in. Well, and he's under investigation. I mean, it's not even just controversies over, you know, morality and decisions and things that he said about 9-11. They're real questions about his finances that he has not answered and amending his FEC filings, questions that he has also not answered But if it's too much of a distraction for him to be on these committees, how does he not justify in his mind that it's too much of a distraction to be in Congress, period?
16: Listen, there was a remarkable press conference a couple of weeks ago where the entire local delegation, the people who serve at the state Mm. level, the city level, the towns and villages that are part of the district, and all of these representatives came together and said, we're not going to refer constituent cases to this office. And a neighboring congressman said, I'll take the burden, just send the people to me so it's it 's unclear whether he's going to be able to have any work coming through that office there's even been some reporting about what his staff members are going through you don 't necessarily want that on your resume you know so you're going to have a, a largely empty office when it comes to legislative work, when it comes to constituent work, a demoralized staff that is wondering what what the heck they 're doing there. Um, the whole thing seems to be spiraling downward. The only thing we know for sure is that. You can't just kick out a member of Congress unless there's an overwhelming vote of the entire Congress, and that doesn't seem to be likely.
4: You'll have to see if the whole sort of Trump blaming the media strategy works when the media is just reporting on what you actually said or did.
3: Yeah, that's right. Except there's a lesson here for the media in all of us to have dug deeper in him and a lesson for folks that chose not to pay the money to do... Uh, well, not just the media, k-
4: but also those who ran against him.
3: I was just and,
22: well. I was, you
13: took the <laughs> words out and of my a mouth. Local news, which broke the yes. original story yes. in L- Long Island. Local and local
3: papers are dying. You yes. Know? yes, people to pay more attention to that. And that was good journalism by them. Yep. Uh, thanks, guys, very much, Sarah Fisher or Lewis. Thank
4: Coming you. up on CNN this morning.
20: <laughs> Our colleagues over from CNN are here. Don Lemon, Poppy Harlow, Caitlin Collins, Chris Licht. We were
4: courtside at Madison Square Garden for the Knicks-Lakers game last night. Look at us hanging out on the court. We played a little basketball, too. How did we score?
2: (laughs) I was on Little Dribblers as a child.
4: I mean, you know, just hanging out, you know, on the front row of the Lakers Knicks game not that that's not even a humble brag. <laughs> did you have fun did you guys I had have a fun? ball
2: I had so much fun and I feel like the bar is set so high for me now because I've only been to one other NBA game. It was against the Lakers. Kobe Bryant was there. And so to go and see LeBron James play, like, my face looked like that the whole game. I was like, I can't believe up this close to LeBron.
4: You guys, you were tell, thinking, we,
2: tell people what he looked like on the court. A Greek god. A Greek god. <laughs> the court looked like it was this big.
4: Well, that's the thing I was just going to say to them. you, Caitlin. Well, we were, the reason, because we were like, oh, look, we're on TV, so it looks like we're not paying attention because we're watching the screen right in front of us. But when you're that close... You don't realize they're like satellites. are so tall, you don't see that on television until you sit really close to the court. And how tall! It's they are.
2: incredible. It was such a great. I mean, it was electric in there last night too. it was game. such like a production. Was... I was saying to you, and then my husband's like, "Are you texting me on TV?
3: Watch the game." Well,
4: I was looking at us on TV. I know. Um, <laughs> we looked ridiculous. By the way, can we talk about how many famous people were there? I
3: was gonna say there were yeah. so oh, Emma Emma Stone, yeah. right? Um, Kirsten Michael Skarsgard B. Or Jordan, yeah. Chris Rock. Skarsgard.
4: Go on, Alex Skarsgård. Whatever. Yeah. Um, the
3: the Chris Giants Ra- player who threw the football.
4: John Stewart was there. Uh, the and football Spike Lee, who came over to say hello to Spike. Jones. Yeah. Daniel
3: Jones. Yeah,
4: Spike is going to the funeral in Memphis today. He told me he's going to do a documentary. Mm. There were tons of LeBron's entire production team was sitting on the front row.
3: I mean, everybody Maverick, wants to watch PR.
4: that game. Everybody, it was great. It
3: was one of those awesome. only in New York nights. Only in New York. It was a new great night.
4: night. We loved it. So yeah. we're going to brag about it. We had to, and thank you um, <laughs> to Warner Brothers, Discovery. Yeah. We got the bosses so seat. The bosses. Yeah,
2: that was a lot of fun. Thank you. Um, also this morning, though, you know, we stayed up late, but we do have a, a lot going on. Yeah. And we have a new study about what you should be eat, eating for breakfast, maybe after you've been at the Lakers-Knicks game overnight. New data highlighting how harmful certain foods may be for your health. According to a study out of the United Kingdom, consuming more ultra-processed foods might lead to be linked to a higher risk of cancer, especially for women. For more on this, let's bring in CNN at Medical course on it. Dr. Tara Narula, no one better to talk about this. Um, some people at this table may or may not have had some processed foods last some night. Popcorn, I won't name, hot
4: dogs. I won't I name names. cotton candy.
2: But, uh, I mean, this is a real issue, and especially if it's more concerning for women. What is the data here?
23: Yeah, so ultra-processed foods, we've talked about these before. These are things that we love to eat. Frozen pizza, cereals, snacks. The problem is they're really low in nutritional value. Many of them are loaded with additives, fat, salt, and sugar. And we they make up a huge part of the American diet, almost 50% of our calories come from ultra-processed food, so it's everywhere. And there is an association with them and things like type 2 diabetes and obesity, but where there wasn't a definitive link necessarily was with cancer. Um, we know that cancer is responsible for one in six deaths worldwide, and 50% of cancers are preventable, so diet could really be a modifiable risk factor. So Ultra-processed foods, in this study, researchers wanted to see the association with 34 different types of cancers. So they took 200,000 individuals in England. They were average age 58. They gave them food questionnaires over several years, and then they followed them for 10 years. And what they found was that there, for every 10% increase in the amount of ultra-processed food in their diet, they did see a 2% increase in overall cancer incidence, mm-hmm. a 19% increase in ovarian cancer incidence, And then when they looked at mortality, or dying from cancer, there was also a 6% increase overall in dying, a 30% increase in dying from ovarian cancer,
3: and a 16% increase I mean, in just, dying from breast cancer. This uh, is a concerning list. I expected hot dogs, but packaged soups, mm-hmm. sauces, yep. sweets...
23: Yeah, it's, yeah, it is, as I said, it makes up so much of what we eat.
4: This is why we, when you talk about obesity and gaining weight, right, but we have so much ultra-processed foods here. And if you notice, if you go to Europe, especially if you go to Italy, you eat, like, tons of pasta and whatever, and you come home and you don't... You they say the
3: French don't get fat.
4: You haven't gained weight... And you don't feel as horrible because it's not processed. It's There's natural. A huge, it's natural. Yeah. There's a huge difference. It's
23: important to point out this is not a cause-effect study. That we right. always want to caveat that. So, yeah. association. Yeah. Ah. By
4: the way, all the ultra-processed foods we ate last night, the Lakers did win 129 <laughs> to 123 over the Knicks. I may or may not have had a hot dog, popcorn, and
2: cotton candy. Cotton candy. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dr. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Alec Baldwin charged with involuntary manslaughter in the fatal shooting on the set of the movie Rust. Why prosecutors accuse him of being reckless? That's straight ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
19: It's a very sad situation. Of um, obviously, we're heartbroken. We really need to get them back to their habitat because when you're taking them out of their their habitat,
16: they they kind of creatures, uh, you know, of, of nature. So they need to be out in in in, uh, in their habitat.
4: Good morning. I think this is a question that everybody has been asking: like, what is you see all these animals disappearing? The cages. So know, many with like. Right? What the heck is happening at America's zoos? We have two monkeys that went missing in Dallas. There are 12 squirrel monkeys taken in Louisiana and an exotic toucan stolen in Florida. We're gonna have much more on that.
3: Also this CNN exclusive Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu making several major headlines In his one-on-one sit-down with our very own Jake Tapper, was Israel behind the mysterious attack on Iran's nuclear sites and weapons programs? And will Netanyahu become a mediator between Russia
2: and Ukraine as this war rages on? Also this morning, we have new revelations in the brutal police beating of Tyree Nichols, as his family in the city of Memphis is preparing to mourn today in his funeral happening just hours from now.
4: Plus, a relentless and deadly ice storm is wreaking havoc all across the South. More than 1,000 flights already canceled today. Is there any relief in the forecast? We will get you there and talk about that. But we start this morning in Memphis, where the heartbroken family of Tyree Nichols is preparing for his funeral. As the nation looks on, still reeling from the horrific police beating he endured. Last night, we saw his parents demand justice from the same spot the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his final mountaintop speech on the eve of his assassination. And the fallout just keeps growing. CNN has obtained the initial police report, which paints a much different picture from what we all witnessed on that video. CNN has also learned the city of Memphis is preparing to release even more videos. Straight now to Memphis, live for us uh, right outside the church where the funeral will take place and that is our ryan young ryan good morning to you as we prepare for tyree's funeral lots of developments in this case what are you learning but well,
10: don it's hard to imagine it's been a week since you were sitting here in memphis and talking to the family and ben crump about all the developments here and you of course talked to the chief now that we're looking at this incident report you can see several things that sort of stand out the officers really never mentioning that they went up in level of force against Tyree. When you also look at the fact, they said he was sweating profusely and irate upon exiting the vehicle. When you watch the video, you can see it was the, actually the officers who approached that car with so much aggression. And then going on from there, it says that Nichols actually grabbed for Detectives Martin gun and listed Martin as a victim. Those are several things that stand out to us. Talking to several police officers yesterday, they say in Memphis, when you have to do excessive force or you have to go up in terms of level, in terms of meeting a suspect, you're supposed to put that in the report. All this surrounding a funeral that's gonna have the nation's eyes on it, as Vice President Harris will be here as well. But listen to Tyree's brother yesterday talk about the pain they're feeling and the one they love so much.
7: My brother was the most peaceful person you ever had in your life. Most. He's never lifted a finger to nobody. Never raised his voice to nobody. If my brother was here today, and if he had to say something, he would tell us to do this peacefully.
10: And Don, something that we wanted to do, we wanted to show you this video of Tyrese skateboarding. So much of the video has been shown of him engaged with police officers in that hospital bed. It's great to see this video of him while he was alive. Obviously, today, the focus will be on his life and seeking justice. But it's the images of happiness in that skateboarding that we should all remember For this young man. On top of all that, Don, you talked about it a little bit. The winter storm may play some role in all this today because obviously people are worried about folks getting to this funeral because of all the ice that is on the streets. All
4: right, Don. Ryan Young, thank you very much.
2: House Republicans hold their first oversight and judiciary hearings today using their new power to launch investigations into the Biden administration and Democrats. The GOP is hoping to tackle everything from the border crisis to pandemic spending and could also issue subpoenas as part of these probes. CNN's Alana Train is live on Capitol Hill. Welcome to CNN, especially coming on CNN this morning for the first time. You know, this is going to be the first time we are seeing the GOP oversight in action. What are you going to be looking for?
24: Well, thank you, Caitlin. And there's been a lot of anticipation leading up to today's hearings. Uh, It's really being seen as the first chance for members in both parties to test drive their messaging and see how these committees will operate on the public stage for the first time. Uh, Republicans James Comer and Jim Jordan, the top Republicans on the most high-profile committees, want to be seen as serious chairmen who are approaching these investigations in a methodical way. And you can see that strategy with the topics and the themes of these hearings. The House Oversight Committee will be doing a hearing on waste and abuse and pandemic spending. And the Oversight Committee will be looking at the border. And these are issues that... Republicans have vowed repeatedly throughout their time in the minority to investigate if they were to take the majority. And there are also issues that are really important to the Republican base. But at the same time, they're not the type of overtly political themes that we know are coming. Things like the Hunter Biden investigation or classified documents, even though those topics will have their time. Today, Republicans are hoping that these themes will show an air of legitimacy and really dig into substantial policy issues mike johnson of louisiana a member of the judiciary committee has told me that they recognize they need to walk a tightrope with these hearings and really are trying to to not scare a lot of voters by being overtly political from the get-go
2: yeah that's going to be a struggle for them but you know from democrats who are on these committees how are they expected to handle these these investigations and these hearings
24: Well, Democrats tell me that they don't just want to play defense. They also want to go on offense. And you can kind of see that strategy with the leaders that they've chosen to serve on these committees. I mean, take Jamie Raskin. He is the Democrat who served on both of the Trump impeachment uh, trials and was a fixture in those hearings, as well as a member of the January 6th committee. And he's really he's told me that he wants to debunk and refute. And he's prepared to really have his team serve as a truth squad against a lot of the Republicans and the potential political. nature that these investigations might take on. Uh, You also have Dan Goldman, another fixture of the impeachment hearings for Donald Trump. He was the lead counsel uh, during the first Trump impeachment trial. And AOC, I mean, one of the best communicators for Democrats. She's going to be really um, taking a lead role in pushing back against the right. Sounds
2: like you are going to be very busy, Elena. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're here joining us at CNN. Thank you, Caitlin. And next hour, we're going to talk more about this with the Republican whip, Congressman Tom Emmer, and the chair of the Judiciary Committee, Senator Dick Durbin. Both have a lot of questions for them.
3: All right. This morning, ice storm and warnings for them are expanding all across the state of Texas. This is as the extreme weather there wreaks havoc on roads. The National Weather Service is urging everyone in the warning areas to avoid driving if possible. So far, two people have already died in accidents. A sleet piled on top of ice, and cars were backed up at least 10 miles down this Texas highway as jackknifed semi-trucks blocked both lanes of traffic. Also, a similar scene in Oklahoma where icy roads caused this truck to lose control. Luckily, that cable barrier kept him out of oncoming traffic, and he was not injured. Let's go to Ed Lavender. He joins us again this morning with more. So we had you yesterday. Now you're at the airport. Yikes going to be hard for those planes to get de-iced and get out of there. What are we looking at?
11: Yeah, it's a week of planes, trains, and automobiles. We're at the DFW International Airport where there were hundreds of flight cancellations yesterday. Those flight issues will continue today. Already 1,200 flight cancellations uh, because of this winter storm. Yesterday, that number topped out around 2,000 flight cancellations, most of those happening here at Dallas-Fort Worth International, Dallas-Love Field, as well as the Austin International Airport as well. And um, so those nightmares will continue. And I can tell you that a drive that would normally take uh, me about half an hour to get here to the DFW Airport took well over an hour this morning with no traffic on the road. And that is one of the good things that we've seen in the last 24 hours is that most people really heeding those warnings of staying off the roadways. And that is because those this winter weather will continue to worsen again today. We've had a bit of a reprieve over the last 15 hours or so here, but another round, the third round of wintry mix expected to move through the Dallas-Fort Worth area in the coming hours. So that will just prolong uh, this nightmare. So it could be well into Thursday before there's really any kind of relief from the icy road conditions that we've seen. And there has been so much uh, sleet and wintry mix that has fallen on the roadways and the cold temperatures. Everything is very much hardened up. So it's going to take some time to recover from all of this.
3: No question. Ed, thank you to you and your team for being out there and that reporting. Don.
4: Well, this morning, Alec Baldwin officially facing involuntary manslaughter charges in the fatal shooting on the Rust movie set. Prosecutors allege Baldwin was not properly trained to handle the weapon that killed cinematographer Elena Hutchins and that he showed a reckless disregard for safety. Senior's Josh Campbell live in Los Angeles with more. Josh, good morning to you. How is Baldwin responding to the charges?
21: expecting, Don, that his team will be aggressively fighting these charges. You know, what is interesting, we knew the charges were coming. Perhaps less expected was the amount of detail that prosecutors put into this charging document as they portrayed a movie set that was plagued by safety violations, even using Alec Baldwin's own words, his uh, professed expertise in firearms and the filmmaking industry, and then contrasting that with safety incident after safety incident that allegedly violates the filmmaking industry standards. But again, for his part, at this point, there's been no talk of a plea deal we expect that his team will be putting up an aggressive defense. We need
20: help
25: immediately. A Creek Ranch.
21: Baldwin and the film's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, are charged with two counts each of involuntary manslaughter in the accidental shooting death of Hutchins. One female shot the chest. After ammunition from a gun Baldwin was using hit Hutchins, killing her and injuring director Joel Souza. The charging documents released Tuesday saying Baldwin was not present for mandatory firearms and safety training before filming. Reed stating Baldwin had only minimal training on the gun he was using. A training session for at least an hour or more in length was scheduled, but the actual training consisted of only approximately 30 minutes as according to Reed, Baldwin was distracted and talking on his cell phone to his family during the training. The documents also indicate that, according to expert armorers, in a rehearsal, a plastic gun, a replica gun, should be used as no firing of blanks is required. New Mexico's first judicial district attorney told CNN this was a key factor when charges were announced.
12: They shouldn't have even been using a live gun that day. They should have been using a a rubber or a plastic gun. Um, All of these things go together and show that there was just this complacency, lack of care on that set. And um, it's more than negligence. And I would say it rises to to recklessness.
21: Hutchins was shot and killed outside Santa Fe on October 21st, 2021. On that day, the assistant director, David Halls, yelled cold gun and handed a prop gun to Baldwin who pulled it from a holster according to an account in the search warrant affidavit. The scene called for Baldwin to point the gun towards the camera. And at 1.50 p.m., a live round was fired, hitting Hutchins in the chest. Do you know how the live round actually got on the set?
12: We don't, and we might not ever know the answer to that question. They somehow got loaded into a gun, handed off to Alec Baldwin. He didn't check it. He didn't do any of the things that he was supposed to do to make sure that he was safe or that anyone around him was safe. And then he pointed the gun at Helena Hutchins and he pulled the trigger.
21: The FBI determined six live rounds were later discovered on the set, according to documents filed by the district attorney. Baldwin says he will fight the charges, and is denied he pulled the trigger the day of the shooting, telling CNN last year,
4: I never once said, never, that the gun went off in my hand automatically. I always said I pulled the hammer back, and I pulled it back as far as I could. I never took a gun and pointed at somebody and clicked the thing.
21: But according to the charging documents, the FBI crime lab determined the weapon could not accidentally fire. For the weapon to fire, the trigger had to have been depressed or pressed. Baldwin, through an attorney, says he was assured the gun did not have live rounds and blames the armorer and the assistant director for the accidental shooting. Both of their attorneys have accused Baldwin of deflecting blame, maintaining they were not at fault. The attorney for Gutierrez Reed issued a statement saying, in part, the district attorney has completely misunderstood the facts and that they will fight these charges and expect that a jury will find Hannah not guilty. Now, we've learned that the film's assistant director, David Halls, has signed a plea agreement to a misdemeanor charge. He's expected to receive six months of probation. As far as what happens with Alec Baldwin next and the film's armorer, the district attorney in Santa Fe told me that they will receive a summons. They will be required to appear before a New Mexico court, either in person or by video conference. And then we're expected that both of them will be entering pleas of not guilty, Don. Josh Campbell, thank you.
3: Well, Russia is preparing for, quote, maximum escalation of the war in Ukraine in the coming weeks. That is according to a top Ukrainian national security official who says the Russians are gathering materials and doing drills in preparation for what comes next. This all comes as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu tells our very own Jake Tapper that he would consider serving as a mediator for Russia and Ukraine, but not unless he is asked.
6: If I'm asked by both sides... And frankly, if I'm asked by the United States, because I think you know you can't have too many uh, cooks in the kitchen, you know, and I'm, uh, you know, we have our own backyard to deal with. Right. Uh, it's not that I don't. Think, I think this is of monumental importance because I think the peace of the world is at stake. As I think the peace of the world is at stake with Iran getting nuclear weapons, it'll destabilize the entire world. If asked by all relevant parties, I'll certainly consider it. Uh, but I'm. I'm not pushing myself in, uh, you know, which is...
3: uh... Let's get right to CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger. He's also White House national security correspondent for The New York Times. David, good morning and thank you so much. Um, I think you need the context, right, of behind Netanyahu saying that to understand how significant that may or may not be, the fact that they have really hedged uh, to not upset Vladimir Putin too much. They have condemned Russia's actions, but also only provided, you know, things that aren't weaponry and being criticized for that in terms of what, how they've aided Ukraine. So given that, how significant is what he told Jake?
26: Well, good morning. I I think that uh, anybody who could step in and mediate here, that would be welcome. And you could imagine a situation in which uh, there might be a role for the new prime minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu, given uh, the fact that he's got a close relationship uh, with Putin and not many Western leaders do. But it's that same close relationship that complicates this. Elsewhere in, in Jake's terrific interview, uh, you hear Prime Minister Netanyahu say, well, you know, we've got a complicated relationship with Russia. We're both uh, uh, dealing with Syria. We're both in Syria and so forth. And it's that uh, nature, that relationship, that has really kept Israel on the fence here, along with India and some other countries. And they have not provided Ukraine with almost anything and uh, except very defensive weapons. And you could imagine, given the missile attacks, how a lot of Israeli technology might be very useful to Ukraine. Mm -hmm.
2: David, one thing that stood out to me was he said he needed to be asked by the Russians and the Ukrainians to step in, but also the United States. You think that's going to happen?
26: Well, I think that uh, the Russians at this point show no particular interest in having a negotiated settlement. As your earlier report indicated, Caitlin, they're getting ready to do a, a big offensive here. Uh, the uh, Ukrainians are getting ready for a big counteroffensive. And so there's really been no diplomacy underway because both sides bo- both believe that they can get the advantage. And they would not want to go to the bargaining table until they had the upper hand. And that's why I'm fearful that this is a year of long grinding war. Um, Also, after many months in which the Russians have been on retreat, they finally seem to have at least found their footing a bit. And I think there's a lot of concern here in Washington that the sheer numbers and weight of what they're gonna throw at this offensive could begin to swing things back in their direction a bit. Well, one
4: wonders, I mean, is there really a solution to all of this? Uh, there are, There's growing concerns both here um, and in Israel about Israel's move to the right, that somehow it's becoming more isolation, it's more, you know, conservative— uh, moving away from its democratic roots. And then Benjamin Netanyahu says, listen, I, you know, I'm not going to get hung up on peace negotiations with Palestinians saying that he has opted for a different approach. So to what end, any of this, if, there, if he doesn't appear to be open to what the Biden administration is saying, a two-state solution?
26: Uh, Don, it's a fascinating question and just the right question. I thought some of the most interesting parts of Jake's interview were uh, Netanyahu's defense of this um, effort to alter the law so that Supreme Court rulings in Israel could be overridden by just a majority uh, uh, in uh, Israel's parliament, the Neset. And that, of course, would uh, basically neuter the um, Supreme Court as a, a force that's moderating this, as you say, most right-wing government we have seen uh, in Israel. I think the other thing that was really missing in Netanyahu's responses uh, to in Jake's interview was any sort of a peace plan or interest yeah. in a peace negotiation. Uh, they, he just he he said nothing other than we're there to guarantee security.
2: Yeah, it was remarkable. But I mean, it also comes at a time when this hasn't been a, a huge priority for the Biden administration either. Uh, It was a fascinating interview overall. David, thank you for joining us to analyze it. We really appreciate you.
26: Thank you, Caitlin.
2: And also this morning, we're going to have more of Jake Tapper's exclusive interview in the next hour. We'll show you that. You don't want to miss it. Also this morning, new video. It's a deposition video with former President Trump where he invoked the Fifth Amendment more than 400 times. He wasn't so tight-lipped when it came to calling out his former attorney, though. Michael Cohen is actually here. He's going to join us live. That's next. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
4: Newly released video shows the former President Trump during an August deposition with the New York Attorney General's office. Trump was deposed as part of the Attorney General Letitia James civil investigation to the Trump organization's business practices. Former President invoked the fifth more than 400 times.
17: I declined to answer the question. I declined to answer the question. Same answer, 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 same
4: answer, same answer, That was in the deposition, the former President Trump also took swipes at his former personal attorney, Michael Cohen.
17: Letitia James relied on the testimony of Michael Cohen, a convicted felon and liar. This is the witness, a stone cold loser, a real loser, that she used to justify her obsessive
4: work. So uh, Cohen is a key figure in several investigations in New York AG's investigation into Trump started after Cohen testified to Congress, this is in 2019. And when he said this.
27: It was my experience that Mr. Trump inflated his total assets when it served his purposes and deflated his assets
4: to reduce his real estate taxes. So here in Manhattan, the district attorney has convened a grand jury to present evidence in a revamped investigation to the effort to stop Stormy Daniels from going public about an alleged affair with Trump. Cohen facilitated the payments and was reimbursed by the Trump organization. He pleaded guilty to nine federal charges, including campaign finance violations, and was sentenced to three years in prison. Here's what Trump said in 2018 about the payment. Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, joins me now. He is the author of the book, Revenge. You can buy it now. And he is here to discuss what is going on. Thank you very much. I I really appreciate you joining us. Listen, first of all, let me get your, I want to get your response to the deposition that you just saw here, pleading the fifth more than 400 times. It's expected. I mean, Donald cannot
27: keep track of the lies that he tells. And so what better way than to stop a fool from being deposed and, Hurting himself further than to tell him to plead
4: the, the fifth at least four hundred times. Yeah. So listen, this new this not shouldn't be a new investigation, but would you call it a revamped investigation now? Yeah. What would you? How would you describe it? Uh, let's say reinvigorated. Reinvigorated. So what, uh, your role in the Stormy Daniels uh, payments, right? You call it the hush money payment. Remind our viewers what your role was. So I was contacted by David Pecker in regard to
27: Stormy Daniels. She then, and that goes back into early, the 2011 period, but then again, right before the election, I was then asked by Donald to handle it with Alan Weisselberg. And what that really meant for me was to resolve it. And so I did, but I did it at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. David Pecker was the inquirer.
4: That's correct. Weisselberg. Is the CFO of the Trump Organization. Which has, has faced re- repercussions for... And is now sitting in Rikers okay, Island. There you go. Okay, so this, a lot of this is centered on you, this reinvigorated investigation that you talk about. How were you contacted, and what happened when you, with your interactions with the DA's office?
27: So I had dealt with the DA 13 times prior to my most recent revisit to the DA, my first time under the Bragg administration... They contacted me. Most recently, they asked for my cell phones because they want to be able to extract from it the voice recordings that I had had with Keith Davidson, a former attorney to Stormy Daniels before Michael Avenatti, uh, as well as a bunch of emails, text messages and so on. That way it could be used as evidence uh, if, in fact, that they
4: proceed forward which I would suspect they are. Well, you turned over a lot of information in the initial, because they searched your home and your (laughs) property. I didn't turn it
27: over. I was raided by the FBI. They took it. All right. So this is new stuff that you turned over to? It's the same stuff, but it's new to the district attorney. They've seen some of it, but now they're in full possession of it.
4: Okay. People are wondering why Donald Trump has not faced any sort of repercussions for, you went to prison, he did not. How do you view this investigation? What is his culpability here? Do you think that he will face consequences for this investigation?
27: So I've said all along that I thought the DA's case is by far the simplest to prove, and it is the most destructive to Donald Trump individually and to his business as well. Um, I do believe that he will see repercussion for the first time in almost his entire life. Uh, We've seen quite a few cases now, whether it's Weisselberg's incarceration, whether it's the 17 uh, counts against the Trump organization. And now with the attorney general's case, uh, I think we're going to see a lot
4: of repercussion. To Why do you believe that? And what does that look like?
27: Well, remember, the attorney general's case is civil in nature and people make the constant mistake of two hundred and fifty million. That's the base that they're talking about. That's not the max. I think it'll be more in the neighborhood of 700 million based upon at least the information that I know. 700 million what? What do you mean? In terms of fines. $700 million in fines. That's correct. That's what I think that Tish James's case will ultimately demonstrate.
4: Why should anyone believe Michael Cohen? Michael Cohen is a convicted
27: felon. Yes, that's true. And I was convicted because the former president got his pecker pulled by a porn star. I was directed to go ahead and to pay the hush money payments, which I was reimbursed. I'm the only one that suffered. And in my book, I go into great length about the improper prosecution that I received. It was 48 hours that either you plead guilty or we file a 80 page indictment that includes your wife. And anyone that knows me, especially Donald, who's the one that I believe set this up with Bill Barr, um, everybody knows that I'd give my life for my wife.
4: Well, there there are two main people in this scenario and that's you and Stormy Daniels, basically, right? Yes. And your your testimony in front of Congress was the basis for a big part of, of, of this investigation.
27: Yes. In fact, that my house oversight testimony brought on more than 11 different investigations. And many of them have now resulted in the, the results that many people in America want to
4: see. Is there anything else we should know about the Menhead? I, I want to play this soundbite. Um, the one like where he calls me a stone cold loser, no, no, which, by no. the way,
27: is ignorant in and of itself. You no. refer stone cold. You refer to like a stone cold killer, <laughs> not a stone cold loser. Uh, It's just Donald
4: deflection. Okay, I was talking about Alvin Bragg. Oh, you got it. (laughs) This is we interviewed Alvin Bragg uh, just a couple weeks ago. And here's what he had to say. Watch.
3: Is that correct that you are looking to jumpstart that criminal inquiry?
4: Well, so first, I'm going to take issue with the word jumpstart. As I said, it's the Times
3: word, not ours. I I
4: know. I understand. Uh, You know, we have been continuously working with with rigor um, throughout the year. Uh, and you're going to be maybe displeased with the answer because I'm not going to we have not confirmed or denied. As you said, that's the Times reporting. Um, look, we're working on a number of uh, pieces and perspectives with this. Like I said, this is one chapter, an important chapter, uh, but there are a lot of, uh, you know, tentacles, if you, will, if you will. We're following the facts where they go. You said in the, and to The New York Times and also in other interviews, I've heard you saying that this was this was just a chapter and people shouldn't read ahead in the book. I'm wondering what that means. Is that because that sort of looks like people are saying, like you're saying to people, "Stay tuned. There's something on the horizon." So, you know, what I'm saying is, l- l- let's pause for the moment as we are. This was, I think, it's very consequential. Uh, the work that went into this, how ably the people of the State of New York were represented. Um, but as I said back in April, th- there's, there's other work going on, um, and we're continuing that. Um, it wasn't pause, We've been doing it. So you've been saying a similar thing since December and maybe even before that you believe that there's more. Is there more even beyond this investigation that this reinvigorated investigation, as you call it?
27: You know, one thing I can say about Alvin Bragg, he's very tight lipped and his office is very tight lipped. What they're working on outside of my involvement, obviously, I have no idea. And they're certainly not sharing it with me. What I can tell you is that if you even look back to the Cyrus Vance investigation where you had Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn, they believed, as do I, that there's more than enough to immediately indict Donald regarding the campaign finance violation, the hush money payments, not just, by the way, to Stormy Daniels. But let's not forget there was a second case, the Karen McDougal case, which I also was charged, pled guilty to, which I didn't pay. That was paid once again by AMI, National Enquirer, and David Pecker. I just reviewed the agreement to ensure Trump was protected. But there's more than one campaign finance violation.
4: Michael, I've got to let you go. Before you go, um, Nikki Haley is going to, this reporter going to throw her head into the ring for president. Can she beat Donald Trump?
27: I think anybody could beat Donald. I say before, I still also don't believe he's going to run. I think this is all part of the great Donald grift, because this is where he's making his money these days.
4: All right. He is technically running, but you don't
27: think he's filed the one page form. You know, that's about it so far. All right, Michael Cohen. Thank you. I appreciate
4: Good you. See you Don. Thank you very much. So as Tyree Nichols' parents prepare to lay their son to rest, we're going to be joined by two women who carry that same burden of grief, the mothers of Eric Garner and Gary Hopkins, Jr., whose sons both died at the hands of police. They're going to join us live.
7: Keep fighting for justice for our son and my family. Yes. Protect my wife because she's very fragile right we now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We need that for her. Trust me, and I need it too. We got a long fight ahead of us, That's right. yeah. and we got to stay strong for it. Mm-hmm. So, justice for Tyree.
3: It's Tyree Nichols' stepfather calling for strength and justice ahead of his stepson's funeral that is this morning. He says his wife, Tyree's mother, is fragile after her son was brutally beaten by police and died three days later. She is now in a group that no parent wants to ever be a part of. Black mothers whose sons died at the hands of police officers. Officers who were sworn to serve and protect. Gwen Carr is also in that group. her son Eric Garner was unarmed when he when he died in 2014 after he was put in an unauthorized chokehold by an NYPD officer. His last words, "I can't breathe," became a rallying cry. Marion Gray Hopkins is a, is a member of that group too. her unarmed teenage son Gary Hopkins Jr. was killed by a police officer in Maryland in 1999. He was attending a dance at a local fire station after losing his father to bone cancer just two weeks earlier. Thank you very much, Gwen, Marion, for being with us today.
25: Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for the invitation.
3: And Marion, I know you wanted to be in Memphis today for the funeral and you couldn't make it because of weather. And Gwen, you're there. So let me, let me start with you, Gwen, about, yes. about why you are there. And then Marion, why you hope to be there.
28: Uh, yes, well I'm here to stand in solidarity with the family. We know that the family needs all the support that they could get at this time. We know that they are overwhelmed by the death of their son <clears throat> as I was when it happened to me and it's so fresh for them but for me it just digs into old wounds and I have to live my son's death over again and it's just not fair to us. It's not fair that we have to suffer at the hands of, of the police that are not doing their job and lose our children.
3: Retraumatizing every single time. Marion, what about you? Why were you trying so yes. hard to be there?
25: I was trying hard to be there because I have been in the shoes of Ms. Wells, and I know the pain, and I know the need to have someone there that understands your pain. I was led to be there, and unfortunately, I was unable to get there due to the weather conditions there. But I wanted to be there to just to let that mother know that she's not alone, that there are so many of us across this nation who stands with her.
3: Yeah. Mm.
4: Uh, you want to go on? Uh, listen, I've got to be honest with you. I, you know, I've interviewed mothers of movement after so many right of these awful police incidents, and I just wonder how many more times does this have to happen before something is done, that we sit on television and we do these interviews with the mothers who are in grief, mothers who have been in grief from years ago, from, you know, past incidents. And I just wonder how often we have to do this, because as Poppy said, it's re-traumatizing for the country, but even more so, especially for the parents and the loved ones of these young men. Gwen, I'll let you speak first.
28: Yes. uh, This has to stop. It seems like they make a mockery and it it keeps on happening. And that's why we stand with the mothers who are traumatized because of these unfortunate um, incidents. But you know, We have to keep on fighting. We have to get laws changed. We have to get rid of bad policing. And a lot of times they say, uh, oh, well, we're going to do proper training, more training. It's not the training. It is the attitudes and the agendas of the police officers who are on duty at that time, the one who commit these heinous crimes. Those are the ones that we have to get rid of so that we will have... Uh, better action in our society, and we don't need to keep getting victimized by bad policing. Marion?
25: Well, I will say that this is happening, as you mentioned, over and over again, Don. It's not something that's an isolated incident. I know those cases that, that go over the national TV um, airways, But we know that this is happening over and over. And there's over a thousand killings every year by police across this nation. So it's not isolated. And we need to address it nationally. We have looked at putting in legislation and laws in within individual states. But this is a national crisis that needs to be addressed if we are to stop this killing. We're tired of just hashtags. We're tired of just justice for this loved one, justice for that loved one. But we're asking that, or we are demanding, that change be made at a national level if we're going to stop this heinous killing and these egregious killings of our loved ones.
2: Gwen and Marion, I'm so glad both of you are here because your perspective on this is just, it's like no one else's, frankly. And I I wonder what both of you made of how the city of Memphis handled this, how officials handled, uh, how the information came out, what they said initially, what we later saw on video, what we heard from officials. Gwen, I'll I'll start with you. What did you think?
28: You know, I just think um, that the... um, Here, the police department, the city, they did the right thing by by firing those officers immediately. That should be done in all cases. But no, like in my case, they put one officer on desk duty, which was still getting paid, still getting raises while he was on desk duty. So what kind of signal does that send to the others? No, we have to stop that. We have to nip it in the bud. If you got to call it what it is, if they don't belong on the police depart on the police force, fire them immediately. Don't wait. If okay, if they find out that, uh, oh well, you know they deserve to be back on the force. Which you know, anytime you murder someone unarmed, you don't belong back on the force. But then maybe you know you have a hearing about that. But fire these police officers immediately because there are thousands of cases, cases that we never hear about, cases that never hit the airwaves. And just like these police officers who murdered this, this young man, you think this is their first case you think that this is the first time they did this no there's probably plenty of other cases out there too that never hit the airwaves but we have to do something about it not only do we have to make laws we have to make the laws be enforced
25: yeah Marian, there is well i i want to recognize the memphis uh chief of police there for firing those five officers. And I am happy to see that they are continuing to look at those others that sat there idly and allowed this young man to be beaten to death. I know that across this nation that they say that there are good police. But when you lay, when you sit aside and you allow what happened to Tyree Nichols and you do nothing, then they are considered in my eye as also bad cops. We are tired. Enough is enough. My case is 23 years old. Wow. When I listened to some of the footage, and I know I should not have listened to it, I should not have watched it, And but when I watch it and I listen to those officers, this is scripted information. Many of the things that I heard on that video, I heard 23 years ago, mm-hmm. and it has not changed. Mm-hmm. I think we, the people, need to stand up One of the things my son said in his last college essay was, it takes a village. Mm. And to see the uprising across this nation as we've seen in the past with Eric Garner, as we've seen with Michael Brown, um, and with many, many others, I think we need to stand up and fight back. But the system is broken. It is working the way it is designed to. It needs to be revamped, because training is not enough. They are taught in that blue wall of silence to do exactly what happened. But I'm happy to see that they moved swiftly. And again, as Gwen has said, this needs to happen in every single, in every single case across this, this country.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. and so often we hear the last cry being for their mothers as it was, Marion, for you, you know, 23 years ago. There is nothing like a mother's grief and our hearts are with you today. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
4: Thank you both. Gwen Carr, Marion, Gary Hopkins, we really appreciate it. And I think it's Thank important to say. Thank you for having
28: us. And I just want to say God bless that family and God bless yeah. that mother. We are with them. Yeah.
4: And God bless you guys as well. Important names here. Gary Hopkins Jr. Thank you. and Eric Garner. Say their names as they say. Thank you. We appreciate it.
3: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
2: All right, this morning, a pair of monkeys are safely back at the Dallas Zoo after they were stolen from their enclosure on Monday. Police found the monkeys, one of them seen here inside a closet in an abandoned home about 15 miles south of the Dallas Zoo in Lancaster, Texas. Police have not released any new details about how the monkeys were taken, but they did share this surveillance video from the zoo and a picture of a man that they say they want to talk to. It wasn't the only strange disappearance that happened, though, at the Dallas Zoo recently because, as you'll recall, just more than two weeks ago, a leopard was missing for several hours after police say her enclosure was intentionally cut. On that same day, officials found a similar cut at another monkey enclosure. None of them had left their habitat, thankfully. Despite increased security, last week, zoo officials also found that one of their folgers had died. This is not just happening in Dallas, though. This is happening everywhere. At a zoo in Louisiana, officials say that 12 of their squirrel monkeys were stolen from the exhibit last Saturday night. At the last check, they still have not been found.
16: We really need to get them back to their habitat because when you take taking them out of their, their habitat, they, they're kind of creatures uh, you know, of, of nature. So they need to be out in, 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 uh, in their habitats. And
19: we've had a, a wonderful uh, run with our troop of squirrel monkeys. They've been very prolific and they have a very strong family unit. You know, it, it's a very sad situation. Uh, obviously, we're heartbroken.
2: At a nonprofit animal sanctuary in Florida, Maggie, the exotic toucan was stolen on Saturday. She has also Not been found. Just this bizarre trend that you're seeing happening.
4: Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Listen, I don't, I hate to like sort of cast blame, but it seems like people with knowledge of these zoos are, unless they're like casing the places or something is going on where someone who has a lot of information about how animals react because most people would not approach a a wild animal. That's a good point. Right? Just like a novice, like out there stealing a regular, you know, robber, right? Someone is just, so something's up. We'll follow it. Yeah.
3: We're also following this today in Washington, what we're hearing ahead of that high-stakes meeting between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy. Can the two come together to deal with the debt ceiling? Plus this.
6: Oh, I don't think the Iranians want an all-out war because they'll lose. Uh, and I think they're very careful about that.
4: More on Jake Tapper's exclusive interview with Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Good morning, the family of Tyree Nichols saying goodbye after his death at the hands of police, the significance of today's funeral site and what we're learning about the police report.
2: A critical meeting today over the fate of America's economy. And even before it begins, President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy already taking jabs at each other as the clock is ticking.
3: Russia is preparing for a quote maximum escalation of its war in the coming weeks that is according to Ukraine. This is Israel's Benjamin Netanyahu tells CNN that he'd mediate between the two sides.
22: And I know that a lot of people want to create this narrative that I I faked my way to Congress which is absolutely categorically false. Um, I've worked hard. I've built ground up a career. Except. George
4: Santos did fake his way to Congress, and he did not build a career that he claimed.
5: I would not run if President Trump ran.
2: Well, things have changed. The first challenger out of the gate to former President Trump seems to be one of his own former top officials. What is Nikki Haley's place in the 2024 race? CNN This Morning starts right now.
4: We begin in Memphis, where the parents of Tyree Nichols are demanding justice as they prepare to bury their son. The funeral is set to begin just hours from now. Looking at live pictures now, this is from Memphis, a church where the service will be held. The nation's still reeling from a horrific video of police officers beating and kicking him. And there's new developments this morning to tell you about. CNN has obtained the initial police report, which was much different from what we saw on that video. CNN has also learned that the city of Memphis is preparing to release even more videos. Civil rights leaders, the vice president, Kamala Harris, set to attend Tyree Nichols' funeral. Last night, Tyree's family spoke at the same sanctuary where the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his final mountaintop speech on the eve of his assassination in Memphis.
7: Keep fighting for justice for our son and my family. Protect my wife because she's very fragile right now. We need that for her. Trust me. And we got to stay strong for her. Mm -hmm. So, Justice for, Tyree. Yes. Justice, Justice, for Tyree. Justice for Tyree, Justice for Tyree, Justice for Tyree, Justice for Tyree, Justice for
4: Tyree. To begin our coverage this hour, we bring in Shimon Procopez, who's been on the ground in Memphis. Simone, good morning to you. The funeral, they're getting set uh, just hours from now, but this story is still developing.
19: Right. There are still more administrative charges to come to the officers, according to the Memphis police. There's still more video. The city yesterday uh, telling us that they're going to be releasing more video in connection uh, to their investigations once the administrative part of this is done. So we're going to see a lot more. A lot more is going to come. Look, the other the bottom line, what we're also learning is that the initial police report does not does not reflect what actually happened, uh, which. Almost begs the question, was, were they trying to cover this up in some way and give a false account, a false narrative of what happened here, painting themselves, the police, the officers, the officers mm-hmm. as the victims?
3: Even saying at that t- at one point at about one, one point. officer who's been charged with second degree Correct. murder. Correct.
19: And look, this is not uncommon in these situations, sadly, but when you have this kind of video that we've been able to see, that paints a completely different picture. And when you look at the video and you look at what the officers were saying, laughing after they beat him up and coming up with excuses and telling supervisors, he tried to grab our guns, he hit us, all kinds of excuses. We're seeing that now that that wasn't the case. So more video More charges, possibly more firings, uh, more officers being removed. You know, right now the city is very much telling us, look, we're in the middle of this administrative procedure. They're asking for patience. They are promising transparency. We need them to release, officially release the initial police report so we can see for ourselves and the country can see exactly what the police wrote in that. They have yet to do that. Hopefully they can will they do be that
3: compelled legally to do that.
19: Well, certainly we can sue. Right. Like as as uh, as the press, we can sue them uh, and try and get it through the courts. A FOIA request. That's how request. you got
3: so much in Uvalde. In
19: Uvalde. Correct. Mm-hmm. A lot of what. But also we had sources in Uvalde who, were, who gave us a lot of information. We don't, don't We don't have that here yet. But the city is trying to do a better job, trying to be transparent. They say, I think the one thing that I would think that I would want to see is the police chief stand up before a podium, have a press conference, and just take questions uh, from the media. I know Don, you interviewed her, which I thought was excellent and important to do, and we learned so much. But I think she still has more to do, and we need to hear more Other about members her. of the media want to ask questions to her. Correct. Yeah, and then we have the funeral today, and I think a lot of today is going to be about justice for Tyree, and I think we're going to hear a lot of that today. But also what we're going to hear a lot is about reform, and I think that's going to be sort of the uh, tone of this. You know, they... Want more change. More change is needed. We're hearing that from family members of other uh, victims who've died at the hands of police, as we heard from some this morning. So there's still obviously a lot more to come, but today's really gonna be about justice for Tyree and reform. I think we're gonna hear a lot about police reform and the needed changes. Yeah. Uh,
2: And with Vice President Harris there, you know, it just raises the question, uh, uh, his family going to the State of the Union in Washington next week, you know, makes it all but impossible that President Biden himself will have to talk about that reform as well. Right.
19: And every administration kind of has their police reform mm-hmm. moment. And this is perhaps Biden's police reform or moment, certainly.
4: You were just looking live at the church there where Tyree uh, Nichols' family will be, well his services will be held, the family will be there. And that is the, uh, it's the same sanctuary where the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther mm-hmm. King Jr. gave his final mountaintop speech on the eve of his assassination. Um, they spoke last night, and this is where now the funeral will be held in just hours, and we will be covering it. Our Shimon Perkopez will continue to report as well. Thank you, Shimon. Thank you,
2: appreciate you. It. Also this morning, the clock is ticking, and this afternoon, President Biden is going to sit down face-to-face with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for the first time since McCarthy became Speaker to hash out differences over the nation's debt ceiling and the threat of a devastating financial default. McCarthy is prepared to negotiate an increase to the debt ceiling, but the White House has drawn a red line there, saying they will not negotiate. The stakes could not be higher for all Americans, not just for lawmakers and for President Biden. Failing to raise the debt ceiling, for example, would delay payments to federal workers. Social security checks would have a major effect on the benefits that veterans receive as well. If the government defaults on its debt, it could spike borrowing costs for consumers and cause turmoil in financial markets. It could throw the economy into a recession when we're already on the verge of one potentially. It would also likely stifle job growth. CNN's MJ Leave is live at the White House where this meeting is expected to happen this afternoon. But I think the big question that most people want to know is just do we actually expect any kind of breakthroughs or really substantial progress to come out of this meeting? What are you hearing from the White House, MJ?
5: That's a good question, Caitlin. You know, this is the first time that the two men are meeting face to face in this new Congress. uh, But it's hard to say whether we can really call this meeting a negotiation uh, because the White House has been very emphatic and consistent in saying all along that when it comes to raising the debt ceiling, there is going to be no negotiation. There aren't going to be any concessions where Speaker McCarthy very much wants to negotiate. He has been taking input from his colleagues. There are obviously members of his caucus who are really pressing him to get get deep spending cuts in return for raising the debt ceiling. So this is all to say the two sides go into this meeting today very far apart. And I think we can expect that this afternoon is only going to be the opening salvo. And needless to say, the expectations are pretty low. And I think a problem, if you can call it that, is that they know that the deadline is June. And as you know very well, in Washington, a couple of months
2: is actually a really long time for all sides to really drag their feet. Yeah, a few months, but still so much on the table to wait that long to come to an agreement. President Biden, MJ, was here in New York last night. He had a private uh, reception with Democratic donors. He was pretty unsparing in his criticism of Kevin McCarthy. What did he say?
5: Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting moment. Uh, president Biden at a fundraiser in Manhattan last night, uh, saying to donors that McCarthy, uh, when he got the speakership, had to extract commitments from uh, some of his colleagues that Biden said were just absolutely off the wall. Uh, and then there's a moment where he turns to Chuck Schumer and says to the New York senator, "You know, Chuck, I can't imagine you making uh, one of those commitments." So, in other words, the president sort of signaling to McCarthy, "Yes." I'm I know you are speaker, but I also happen to know that you are a very compromised one at that. And Caitlin, that happens to be
2: true. And it also happens to be an important dynamic in these talks. Shaping up to be a pretty tense meeting. MJ Lee will be paying attention to all of it. Thank you. And coming up, we're going to talk to Republican congressman and the House Majority Whip, who has a lot of the line here with this meeting, Tom Emmer, and the Democratic Whip in the Senate, Senator Dick Durbin. Israeli Prime Minister
3: Benjamin Netanyahu says there is a formula for peace, but it does not prioritize direct negotiations with Palestinians, at least not right now. The United States' position, though, clearly remains in support of a two-state solution. Take a listen to what Netanyahu told our Jake Tapper about what he thinks is key to ending the Israeli-Palestinian conflict.
6: I think we can get hung up on this, and we have in the past. People said, you know... Unless you resolve this issue and unless you have peace with the Palestinians you 're not going to have a broader peace with the Arab world so for twenty five years, the Palestinians who don 't want peace with Israel want to see a peace without Israel who don't want a state next to Israel but a state instead of Israel. they had an effective veto on israel 's expansion of the peace circle of peace around it. I went around them there is a formula for peace, but my view is because of the the fact that the the continuing, the persistent Palestinian refusal, which goes back a century, to recognize a Jewish state, a nation state for the Jewish people in any boundary, that persistent refusal persists. If we wait for them, we're not gonna have peace. People are, said you have to work your way outside in, first, inside out, first peace with the Palestinians, peace with the Arab world. I think realistically, it's gonna be the other way around. But are you If we make peace with Saudi Arabia, it depends on the Saudi leadership, and bring effectively the Arab-Israeli conflict to an end, I think we'll circle back to the Palestinians and get a workable peace with the Palestinians. I think that's possible and I think that's the way to go.
3: Let's bring in our Nick Robertson, CNN International Diplomatic Editor. Nick, that was really uh, eye-opening to hear his position on how he thinks peace can be achieved.
29: Yeah, and there's clear daylight, as you said, between the Israeli position, his position, and Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, and and, uh, the the United States position. And we heard that expressly when Secretary Blinken was standing side by side the day uh, that he arrived here with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, The Prime Minister laid out that analysis, increase the circle of peace, we'll get a workable situation with the Palestinians, not a two-state solution, but a workable situation. And uh, Secretary Blinken said very, very clearly, that is no Substitute for direct Israeli Palestinian efforts uh, to improve their, to improve their dialogue. And it's far from clear at the moment that uh, Saudi Arabia would actually join Netanyahu's circle of peace. Why? Because they see themselves as this hugely important, the most powerful, pivotal uh, Muslim nation in the world, and they don't want to, they don't want to give up that position to make a deal with Israel. If if the Israeli leader at the time, Netanyahu, right now, now cannot deliver what they want. Right. They haven't fully articulated what they want, but um, the Saudis don't seem to be close to that. So there's a lot of daylight in this.
3: And Jake did talk about that as, as the grand prize, right, for Netanyahu normalizing relations with Saudi. Well,
4: Nick, I-, I wanna talk uh, now about the weekend drone attacks on this Iranian military plant because the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times have cited unnamed officials claiming that Israel is responsible for that attack. Um, CNN has not independently confirmed. The Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, did deny it, but he did not deny it. I should say when he spoke to Jake. Listen to this.
16: Did Israel carry out this strike in Iran over the weekend?
6: I, I never uh, talk about specific operations, with the exception, I think, of our raid on uh, Iran's secret nuclear archive. Uh, and every time some explosion takes place in the Middle East, you know, Israel is uh, uh, is blamed or given responsibility. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we're not. But I will say that there is, you're right, there is an overriding mission that I have. And I came back and ran in these elections and was elected the sixth time, uh, for the sixth time, because I have three overriding goals. One is to thwart Iran's nuclear ambitions. The second is to expand the peace dramatically to end the Arab-Israeli conflict as a lead into to the, ending the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the third is to further boost Israel's incredible economy. But the first is first. The first is Iran. And I will only say this, that I will do everything in my power as Israel's prime minister to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear arsenal that is expressly directed at annihilating us. And they also say not only death to Israel, but death to America.
4: How does that answer play in Iran?
29: Um, That's not gonna play very well because uh, Iranians are clearly gonna take it as an implicit threat that if they try to breach anything that Israel considers dangerous, that there's the the potential of attack. Um, They are aware of that, but this will heighten those fears and anxieties, this drone attack, a new type of attack, uh, and the Iranians themselves are gonna know how plausible and possible it is to use that same technique at other locations. So uh, this this is a real life threat. Uh, How they respond, this is going to be very, very interesting because they, they, they have the, the possibility to escalate and not directly on Israel themselves, but through the proxies in the region, through Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, through proxies, uh, let, let's say, stoking tensions out of, out of Yemen or across the border in Syria uh, from Israel. They have a multiple of ways of stoking uh, this fire.
2: Yeah, and also interesting how he brought up Iran supplying Russia with drones that are being used in Ukraine. Nick Robertson, thank you so much.
4: Thanks, Nick. Uh, Any minute now, the Florida College Board is set to release the detail outline for an AP African-American studies course that was... Thrust into the national spotlight after Governor Ron DeSantis banned it from high schools. He claimed the class imposed a quote political bias. Meantime, DeSantis says that he plans to ban state universities from funding diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, calling them discriminatory. Leila Santiago in Miami Forest this morning. Good morning to you, Layla. What can you tell us about this AP African American course?
30: Well, good morning, Don. Yeah, this is a course that is really under scrutiny, intense scrutiny right now. So let's back up and talk about exactly how we got here. The College Board, that is the nonprofit organization that oversees advanced placement courses in the U.S., has been working on this for more than a year. They've launched pilot courses in about 60 schools across the country. And when the Florida Department of Education reviewed an initial proposal for the the framework of that course, they took a lot of objections to. It. They rejected it. And in a letter uh, about a month ago, they said to the college board, and I quote, that the course was inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. So context here, let, let's talk about that law portion. Remember last year, Florida passed a law that basically said a student cannot be made to believe in the classroom that he or she bears any sort of personal responsibility or or should feel any sort of uh, distress or anguish or guilt based off of the actions committed by the same race in the past. So that speaks to some of the objections that the Florida Department of Education commissioner listed off when asked about why they rejected the course. So let's look at those objections. They include in the list, uh, the mention of queer theory, the movement of black lives, reparations among others. But again, this is based off of initial review from framework that was proposed a year ago, February, 2022, it was dated. And I spoke to um, the co-chair of the development committee for this course, and he says today in the official coursework, you should expect revisions. That is part of the typical process for AP courses. But those revisions, he said, are based off of feedback from students, from teachers, from experts engaged in the pilot program, not politicians. He also emphasized that this is an AP course on African-American studies, not African-American history which means it is an interdisciplinary look that is a broad view of the African-American experience, including art, literature, even geography and culture. It is a course that is optional for advanced students and could potentially give them college credit in the future. So the big question is, once this is released on, will the state of Florida allow this to be taught in Florida classrooms?
4: Layla Santiago, thank you very much. Appreciate that.
2: Also this morning, Texas is expanding ice storm warnings across the state as extreme winter weather is crippling roads. You're looking at live pictures of the driving conditions in Dallas, a rare sight in the city. The National Weather Service is urging everyone, don't drive if you don't have to. Two people have died in accidents on sleet and icy covered roads, sending cars sliding around. 200,000 people now do not have power. Cars were backed up about 10 miles down this Texas highway as a jackknifed semi-truck's blocked both lanes of traffic. Also in Oklahoma, icy roads have caused this truck driver to lose control. Luckily, he was not injured thanks to the cable barriers pulling him out of oncoming traffic. Also, She's dead.
4: She's dead. also we have some breaking news that Caitlin is going to report right now. Caitlin, you want to tell us about this that you just not discovered? I'm not reporting
2: that I'm getting from sources I should <laughs> know. I'm just reading it on Twitter. But uh, in addition to what we're talking about, you know, there with the weather, you know, we were talking about sports updates this morning and what we're getting to. Tom Brady has just announced he's actually, finally, fully retiring. He just posted a video on Twitter a few moments ago confirming, saying, quote, I am retiring for good.
4: Do we have video of that, guys, in the control room? Let's listen.
20: Good morning, guys. Uh, I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring
1: for good. I know the process uh, was a pretty big deal last time, so when I woke up this morning, I figured... I just press record and let you guys know first, so I uh, won't be long-winded. If you only get one super emotional retirement essay and I used mine up last year, so I uh, really thank you guys so much to every single one of you for supporting me. My family, my friends, my teammates, my competitors. Uh, I could go on forever, there's too many. Um, Thank you guys for allowing me to live my absolute dream. I wouldn't change a thing. Love you all.
4: Yeah, he said he had one. This is two, right? Remember the last time he said he was going to retire and then he came back? That was, um, and, yeah.
3: And I, that was really touching to hear him yeah. say it that way. 20 seasons with the Patriots and...
2: Also notable how he's doing it this time because last time it got reported. Yes, he's getting in they front. They were of it. kind of denying it and he was saying he wanted to to record it first and be one of the first people to tell people. Uh, I know John Berman's gonna be heartbroken. I was over just this, saying but, where's but, uh, Berman. Yeah, but it's I mean it's amazing. We were, you know, we were talking about what an amazing athlete LeBron is as he was coming up on that scoring yeah. achievement last night when we were at the game. Tom Brady, I mean, has so many records of his own. has been such a, a force. But there
4: was also go. consternation from, even within his family, that he admitted uh, that his wife, right, wanting him to retire, and um, that did not happen. And then, quite honestly, didn't have the season that he thought he looked really good season comparatively to anyone, but didn't have the season that he thought he was uh, going to have. But at yeah. a certain point, one realizes what's important, and even, you know, the great Tom Brady, um realizes and that he gets, he's gotten to a point physically and emotionally and with his life that it's time for him to move on. And it'll be learn.
3: interesting to hear from him in the days and weeks ahead what led to this decision, right? But um, back in 2000, I think it was, I was just looking that he was drafted, 199. Yeah. And look how he went to prove to yeah. everyone that he was the best. Yeah. The our our best.
4: Tom Brady expert on the phone. John
20: Berman, hey. what say you about this breaking news, sir? Good morning. I think Poppy Harlow is so smart. When she refers to Tom Brady as the best, she's just dead on right.
3: All for you, Berman.
20: <laughs> I'm so impressed. You've been listening to me all these years. <laughs> Look, I'm I'm a little surprised only in that, you know, he 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 didn't have a great season, or his team didn't have a great season, and he still clearly had something left. So I thought he might play just to prove. Something, but I guess what else do you have to prove when you're Tom Brady when you've won seven Super Bowls already? Um, I, I guess he just wants to move on. He's got some multi jillion dollar broadcasting deal, so you're not going to need to take up a collection for him, is what I'm saying. Um, you know, he's going to do just fine. But you know, I, I wonder. I do wonder if he regrets this last season. I, you know, he had not a great season on the that. field. Not a great. You know, I. I we're never going to know what happened. Uh, in his marriage whether or not it was going back that broke it up or maybe he went back because it wasn't great he just wanted to get away from it all which would be understandable if that were the case too
4: john can i ask you something because as we're um i've been watching i've watched him closely right when even like relief uh quarterbacks come in and they have a better game than him or they beat him and then i watch him on the sidelines and it wasn't like the same tom brady the confidence that you see and um I mean, quite honestly, looking defeated. Did you notice that? Because I, I would just watch him in these games, and it's like, I wonder if he's regretting this last season.
20: Well, I think he was frustrated. But, see, I disagree in that they, there weren't that many quarterbacks who played better than he played. He still played really well. He was still a top you know, five yeah. to ten quarterback in the league. It's just he didn't have the guys around him. It wasn't all – going great. And for a guy who over the course of his career has only won basically everything, it's really frustrating. So it's one of the things you listen to Tom Brady and it's one of these dilemmas or conundrums about competition is you always got the sense that he got more pain out of losing than he got joy out of winning. Um, And that's a problem I think for a lot of athletes. For a lot of people in a lot of different professions. But if he could just step back and take stock of, of what he's accomplished, I think he would be rather
1: pleased on february 1st
4: 2023 at 8 20 in the morning lots of folks will remember where they were when tom brady officially retired again our andy Scholes, i'm sure
31: oh yeah hey don Good can
4: morning. you hear me Yes, I can hear yeah. you. You're on, okay, air, I, Caller, you're on the air, sir. of you're
31: on the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just, I was just at my computer just now scrolling through, and I saw Tom Brady popping up, and I was like, Oh my goodness, is this it? And certain, uh, yeah, it was, and it was kind of, you know, this is the end of the roller coaster. It looks like, you know, last season we went through. He retired. He thought about it. He came back, and uh, and you guys just kind of discussed it. It was not the season I imagined he was coming back for. The Bucs struggled, you know, much of the way through, didn't even have a winning record. And uh, you kind of hit it there, Don. You know, Brady didn't really look like himself this year. He kind of looked like he didn't want to get hit anymore. Uh, you know, we weren't used to seeing the, you know, him losing so many games. He lost more games this year than uh, he had lost in a, since I think it was high school or something like that. So, you know, but it's definitely a day. A sad day for football fans, uh, guys, because Tom Brady gave us so many incredible moments over the years. All of the Super Bowl appearances, uh, all of the comebacks, you know. I I like to say there's never going to be an athlete like Tom Brady because he started off as the biggest underdog there is, a sixth-round pick, you know, pick 199, a guy that was expected to do nothing, and then he turned into the greatest champion uh, in NFL history and one of the greatest champions, you know, we've ever witnessed uh, in sports winning seven Super Bowls, something uh, that is likely never going to be done again. So certainly yeah. a sad day for all of us sports fans.
2: I mean, every he has every major record. He holds all of them. I mean, it's just, like, incredible, yeah. and the impact that this will have. You know, when people talk about him retiring – it's so hard for these athletes to walk away from the game. I mean, this is all yep. they've ever known. He talked about the impact of that. People close to him talked about it. Uh, do you have any – I mean, as we're thinking about, like, looking back at his career, or, what's going to stand out to you the most? Like, what any games, any plays, Andy, that you, you'll never forget?
31: Well, so I got to be there for uh, three of his Super Bowl wins. And I, I, I tell you what, I'll never forget when he was down 28-3 to to the Falcons in Houston in that Super Bowl – And, you know, things started to happen. They started to make a little bit of a comeback. And in your head, you're like, it's Tom Brady. He's going to actually do this. And uh, so that's a game I'll definitely never forget uh, looking back on. But it's, it's all the moments, right? Like, we, I mean, so think about it. Tom Brady has been in the NFL for 23 years. I mean, there is a lot of NFL fans that don't even know an NFL Without Tom Brady, think about that. So I, it's it's going to be. I mean, you know, moving forward, you know, it's going to be like, what do we do without him? Because he's given us so many moments over the years, and uh, you know, whenever he was on, you know, in a game, and he was down, guys, you you never wanted to turn it off because you knew. He could bring the team back. And we even saw it this year in a couple of games. You know, even that Saints game, I think it was on Monday Night Football. They had no business <clears> winning. <throat> they were down two scores with like a minute and a half left. But Brady brought it back and won it. And I think it's, that's something we're just always going to miss. It's it's the charisma and the
4: magic that he brought to the game of football. You would have to bring up the Saints game. And that my mom is <laughs> oh, yeah. watching, who is visiting <laughs> from Louisiana. I mean, come on. Hey, uh, listen, our Carolyn Mano um, – Remember, we were just on a couple of months ago talking about this and Carolyn said these high performing athletes, it's really hard for them, Andy, to leave the game, to stop doing what they're doing and all the attention. And I mean, this is something that motivates you. It may you get out of bed, right? This this motivates people like that to get out of bed. Quick answer yeah, before they- the producers beat me up. <laughs>
31: Well, and, and, you know, that was something Brady really prided himself in, right? The TB12 method. Yeah. He was the one guy that could defeat Father Time. He's 45 years old, mm. still playing at a very high level in the NFL. So uh, I'm sure it was a tough decision, but he, he's got a nice gig uh, waiting for him at Fox Sports.
4: <laughs> mm. All right, thanks to the great John Berman, the great Andy Scholes, talking about the great Tom Brady with my great co-anchors, Poppy and Caitlin. here. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. All right, uh, we're going to have more uh, straight ahead on this. Plus, everyone is watching today's meeting between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the White House. Up next, we're going to talk to Republican Congressman and House Majority Whip Tom Emmer. Caitlin's going to do that about what we can expect from this meeting happening today.
3: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
2: All right, just moments from now, House Republicans are going to meet to talk about the debt ceiling ahead of Speaker Kevin McCarthy's sit down with President Biden this afternoon. It is shaping up to be quite a tense meeting given the White House has said it will not negotiate. They want McCarthy to commit to not letting the U.S. default on its financial obligations. On the other hand, McCarthy has accused the president of being irresponsible for saying he is refusing to negotiate. Republican Congressman and Whip Tom Emmer of Minnesota is joining us now. Good morning, Congressman. I guess the first big question is, what is Kevin McCarthy going in there expecting to happen during this meeting with President Biden today?
1: Well, it's great to be with you, Caitlin. I I think first off, you correctly set where the parties were probably a week ago, with the president saying there would be no negotiation and McCarthy saying, look, we've got to be able to talk about reasonable stuff, sensible stuff, responsible stuff when it comes to uh, what we're going to do with the debt ceiling. (laughs) I think today is a great sign. I think today shows you uh, when the president is inviting Kevin McCarthy down that the negotiations are beginning, and that's a good thing.
2: But they're not gonna reach in any kind of agreement today, you think?
1: Oh, this is is going to be a process. And and I'm sorry, I gave it the, no, I doubt there's gonna be any agreement. This is a get to know you, I would say, meeting where they're gonna sit down and talk about uh, their mutual goals, uh, their concerns. I think Kevin McCarthy will reassure the president there will be no default. He will reassure the president that Social Security uh, and Medicare are off the table. That's not going to be discussed. But certainly, as he, I expect he will tell the president, as he's told uh, others uh, over the last few weeks, you can't tell the American people there is no waste uh, in our spending, uh, government spending, that we shouldn't be looking at. So I think it'll be a good first meeting, Caitlin, where the two, uh, the two leaders will sit down and have a good conversation, uh, which hopefully, as we proceed, will lead to uh, some type of resolution that's in the best interest of the American
2: people. If Social Security and Medicare are off the table, as you just said, where do Republicans want to cut spending?
1: Uh, that's going to be part of the dance. The, uh, it's, it's You talk about cut spending. How about spending reforms? I think people are going to have to look at uh, how this budget is built over the next 10-year period uh, and talk about uh, where those efficiencies are, where the waste is, uh, the things that can be done from a, uh, a legislative standpoint and with the White House to make sure that the budget that we're doing going forward is responsible, it's reasonable, uh, and it's sensible for the American people so that we're not mortgaging our children and grandchildren's future.
2: Congressman, you've said Republicans will not impact defense spending. You said we aren't cutting defense. We assured appropriators and asked our House Armed Services Committee. That's not what we're, do- what we're doing. Are you saying there will be no cuts to defense spending?
1: Actually, I, I think uh, this has been a discussion amongst all of our members. Uh, the White House tried to come out and say that's what was going to happen. Again, everybody's going to be looking at efficiencies. Everybody's going to look at bringing these different budgets into the 21st century, Caitlin. Uh, everything's on the table in terms of scrutinizing what we're spending on, why we're spending it. Can we spend better? Can we spend more efficiently? I think that's the discussion that's going to start today, and it's going to take some time uh, with both sides having negotiations as to where we go to make sure at the end of the day this isn't a Republican or Democrat issue. This is what's good for this country and future
2: generations of Americans. Well, it sounds like defense spending is on the table then. Even if there is an agreement that is reached down the road, between Kevin McCarthy and President Biden, you're the whip. Are you confident that you can get your divided group of Republicans to vote for that deal?
1: First off, I want to make it very clear from the Republican side, we are going to make sure that our men and women in uniform have the equipment, the tools that are necessary for them to accomplish their mission here at home and around the globe. That is the primary uh, goal of what Republicans will do with our uh, counterparts in the White House and on the other side of the aisle. As far as Republicans in the House, we have 222 members, Caitlin. The great thing about that is every voice matters. And yes, I'm very confident that as a team, we will work together to make sure that not only are our members representing the people who elected them, because that's first, that's the primary thing that they have to do. But second, that they're able to advance the agenda that the American people voted for when they elected a new Republican majority in the U.S. House of Representatives last November.
2: Yesterday, we saw Congressman George Santos step down from his committees. He says it's temporary. I wonder, given you were the NRCC chair and given what we have found out about what he said that wasn't true and what was a lie, do you regret backing him?
1: Well, nobody knew uh, any of this. I, I, I find it very interesting that our counterparts at the DCCC Uh, didn't do opposition research. Uh, This wasn't his first election. This was his second election. I find it very interesting that our friends at the New York Times didn't do the work that they typically do when they scrutinize candidates like this. Uh, At the end of the day, uh, George Santos, I expect him to do what's right for the people who elected him. Uh, And that'll play itself out as we go forward.
2: But do you regret backing him? I'm talking about you specifically.
1: Uh, Personally, uh, when it comes to candidates that are out there, there's a whole host of candidates Uh, George Santos was elected by the people of that district to represent their interests. Uh, Now he's going to have to answer to those people.
2: Yeah, well, he was elected on a resume of lies, I'll note. But also today, there is a question about whether or not Republicans are going to vote to remove Ilhan Omar, block her from getting on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Do Republicans have the vote today to do that?
1: Yeah, I believe that's going to happen. I mean, I, Ms. Omar has proven that she's not, uh, she should not be on this committee. And the important thing to note, Caitlin, is there's a uh, process in place where um, Ms. Omar will be able to present her case to the Rules Committee first in a very public forum. Uh, Keep in mind her own members of her own party have uh, criticized her anti-Semitic remarks and said that she is not worthy of serving on this committee because of these past statements and because of her bias. It's much like a judge, for instance, Caitlin, when a judge gets a case, if he or she has a uh, a preconceived bias or interest, uh, it is the rule that they need to recuse themselves. Uh, She is not willing to do that. So the process will be she will present in front of the Rules Committee. Uh, If they agree with her, then it's over. If they don't agree with her, it'll come to the House floor. She will be able to debate to the entire uh, assembly of members uh, her case and then there will be a vote. And if she loses that vote, she will be uh, prevented from being seated on the Foreign Affairs Committee. She'll be able to be on any other committee in Congress, but she won't be able to be on that one. And just so everybody's clear, if that happens, she still has an appeals process after that where she can appeal the decision to the uh, House Ethics Committee.
2: Well, I do want to note, based on, since you referenced her past comments, she has clarified those. She has apologized for those. When this was a topic of conversation, she actually invoked your name on Twitter the other day, uh, saying, Whip Tom Emmer once said, Jewish donors essentially bought control of Congress, that you never apologized. She's referencing a letter you sent as the chair of the NRCC when you referenced billionaires George Soros, Tom Steyer, and Michael Bloomberg, You said, quote, these left-wing radicals essentially bought control of Congress. I don't have to tell you, sir, that obviously George Soros is Jewish, Michael Bloomberg is Jewish, Tom Steyer's father is Jewish. Uh, What's your response to that?
1: Well, Ilhan, I will put my reputation and credibility up against uh, Ms. Omar's any day of the week. Uh, You say that she's apologized. In fact, she has said very publicly that she does not apologize for making uh, 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 her anti-Semitic remarks. And... As for what she's pointing out, uh, this is exactly what they do when they do not have the facts or the law on their side. All they do is try to distract with things that are completely unrelated and not uh, accurate. So that would be my response.
2: But given that you named those three individuals, do you feel like that's a sign that every lawmaker should be careful about their language and their insinuations?
1: Again, the issue today before the House is going to be about a member who, since she has been in Congress, has attacked American allies, has attacked America. She has made statements that the United States has committed terrorist acts. That's what the issue is before the uh, House today. I understand, Ms. Omar has to explain to her fellow colleagues why it is that she would make those comments and how she is then qualified to actually make decisions when it comes to foreign affairs and our relationships with uh, countries around the globe. That'll be the issue today.
2: I understand that, Congressman, and those are definitely questions that we have asked of Ilhan Omar previously, our reporters on Capitol Hill, anchors here in Washington. But I'm asking about your comments specifically.
1: Yeah, I I always watch what I'm saying. I always respect everybody around me. Uh, But there's nothing wrong with uh, Ms. Omar's free speech again. We don't have to like what she's saying. She can say whatever she wants. The key here is that when it comes to sitting on this committee, Caitlin, those remarks and her behavior in the past, her actions, quite frankly, disqualify her from serving on that committee, which is completely different than what you're asking me.
2: All right, Congressman Tom Emmer, you say that Republicans have the votes to make sure she's not on that committee. We'll wait for that vote today. Thank you for joining us this morning ahead of these important talks happening at the White House.
1: Thank you, Caitlin.
2: More on the
3: breaking news this morning: Tom Brady is retiring. This time, he says it's for good. And Ozzy Osborne making a major announcement about his future. We'll tell you what it is.
4: Okay, we have more now on our breaking news: Tom Brady retiring for good. Dave Zirin, sports editor at The Nation, joins us now. Uh, good morning to you, sir.
32: Huge, right? Uh, Beyond huge we're talking about the greatest of all time in the most popular sport in all the land right before the Super Bowl, on the one-year anniversary of his last retirement. So this could not be bigger news in the sports world. I mean, I cannot think of anybody else really other than maybe LeBron James on the present sports landscape, who if they said they retired, the entire sports world would just stop on a dime because that's what's happened this morning.
4: Yeah, so I say, and to have CNN covering it, right, as breaking news. Um, just real quickly, is this a surprise to you? Did this come as a surprise at this moment?
32: Uh, It honestly does because it looked like there are some places being set up for Tom uh, to play this fall. Uh, A lot of rumors going around, uh, looking at schools for his kids in Miami. The Dolphins looked like a possible destination. Any team would have rolled out the red carpet for the guy. I mean, just I got to say, we've lost the last athlete of of my generation, too. I think some people are a little bit sad (laughs) that uh, somebody... Five years old with the greatest career in the history of North American sports is saying goodbye.
4: Yeah, he says so, but we'll see if this one sticks, Dave. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Be well. Thank you.
3: President Biden in the White House uh, said to speak with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy just a few hours from now. And the most pressing issue, of course, is going to be if they're going to raise the debt ceiling. The White House is sticking to its message that they've been sending all month.
30: It is the duty, the basic duty of Congress to get that done. And so we're not going to, uh, we're just not going to negotiate
2: uh, about that. So the president's not going to negotiate over uh, Congress's constitutional responsibility. That was
3: the White House just yesterday. Joining us now, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois. He's the Democratic whip and the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Good morning, sir. Good morning. So on top of that, uh, yesterday, Speaker McCarthy said he thinks Biden will, quote, Sit down and negotiate. Close quote. Today, do you think President Biden should negotiate on the debt ceiling?
8: Absolutely not. The debt ceiling is a critical vote for our economy, for jobs, for the fate of businesses, and the reputation of the United States to pay its bills. Uh, That should not be negotiated. Now, if Speaker McCarthy wants to negotiate on the budget, that's another item. It's another issue. It will come up a little later. And I would suggest to him. Some of the things that are coming forward from MAGA Republicans, A TAX on Social Security and Medicare, which Senator Scott of Florida have suggested, mm-hmm. uh, has suggested, has uh, suggested, as well as the notion of a 30% national sales tax, mm-hmm. which is floating in the House of Representatives, are non-starters.
3: Okay, I will note that McCarthy said on CBS on Sunday that uh, Social Security and Medicare are, are off the table, but. but- let me ask you this, because we'll remember, you'll remember well that it was then Vice President Biden in 2011 uh, in the White House leading the negotiations within Speaker Boehner. But this is a very different time and this is a very different Congress with different rules uh, now with McCarthy in. Do you think it is more likely that we'll see a default than it was when we came to the brink in 2011?
8: God forbid that Speaker McCarthy would want that on his record. For the first time in the history of the United States, we're going to default on our debt. Watch what happens to interest rates if he has his way. Uh, This default would be disastrous in terms of uh, new home purchases and the value of homes, businesses, and jobs. We're going to find ourselves uh, in a spin into a recession if McCarthy follows through.
3: It sounds to me like, tell me if I'm wrong, you are more worried about a default than you were then. Are you?
8: Well, look, 15 roll calls later, I wonder if the House of Representatives is in a position to do the responsible thing. Three times during the Trump presidency, we had bipartisan votes to extend the debt ceiling. There was no game playing here. At a time when President Trump was increasing the national debt accumulated over 230 years by 25 percent, So the debt was going up. We were asked to extend the debt ceiling. We did the responsible thing. We should do it again.
3: I understand the debt did go up $8 trillion under Trump. I just want to note for viewers, a lot of that was because of COVID stimulus. And people misunderstand, I think, what you rightly point out, which is that a budget is about future spending and the debt ceiling is about promises already made. But on future spending, I think you'd agree that there is some waste in government. What cuts do you think Democrats should consider?
8: Listen, we should always consider eliminating waste fraud and abuse, but let's not make a mistake. Under the Biden administration, we've been reducing the national debt. When we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, Uh, which gave the $35 a month insulin, for example, and addressed a lot of issues, the cost of health care for seniors, we reduced the deficit with that as well. So we've been doing responsible things. The conversation should continue. But don't hold the economy and reputation of the United States hostage by saying the debt ceiling is somehow involved in this.
3: A lot of that direct uh, uh, impact we've seen in terms of of decrease in spending has been because some of that stimulus... FOR COVID HAS ENDED, BUT YOU DIDN'T NAME ANY SPECIFIC THING THAT YOU THINK DEMOCRATS SHOULD CONSIDER CUTTING. CAN YOU GIVE Listen, ME SOME I've been, SPECIFICS?
8: I'VE BEEN IN THE HOUSE, AND LET ME JUST ADD, YOU FAILED TO MENTION, AND I'M NOT HOLDING IT AGAINST YOU, <laughs> THAT UNDER THE TRUMP ADMINISTRATION, THERE WAS ALSO THE $2 TRILLION TAX BREAK FOR THE oh, WEALTHIEST of AMERICANS AND THE corporations.
3: 2017
8: TAX CUTS. P- PLEASE INCLUDE THAT IN THE TRUMP RECORD AS WELL. IN, in TERMS OF GOING FORWARD, THAT'S ANOTHER POINT I WANT TO MAKE. When we're talking about revenue that we can bring in to reduce the deficit by asking the wealthiest among us and corporations that are escaping tax responsibility to do their fair share, that has to be part of the conversation as well. This notion that we're just going to have no alternative but to cut basic programs for veterans or for people in low-income situations. That to me is a false choice.
3: One final question before we move on to police reform, which I know is a personal priority for you, Senator. You introduced last year the Debt Ceiling Reform Act, and that would essentially kick this responsibility from Congress to the Treasury Secretary, so essentially to one unelected individual. Um, Why should that be taken out of the hands of Congress, noting that Congress has taken us to the brink before and it can be disastrous for the economy? I mean, isn't that why you guys are elected, to do this hard stuff?
8: Well, of course, that's true. But the the fact is, there's been political gamesmanship when it comes to our debt ceiling over the last 20 or so years. And we've got to bring this to an end. We shouldn't put the economy of the United States in peril because we're uh, in the midst of uh, preparing for a presidential campaign. And my belief, and others share it, is that saying to Congress, you can disagree with the president on extending the debt ceiling, Mm -hmm. but you have to do it with an extraordinary vote. I think that's let us us come out on the record on this issue without jeopardizing the economy.
3: So, Senator, let's move to police reform, because you have said recently that your colleague, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senators Cory Booker, Tim Scott, are uh, ready to work on this again after the death uh, of Tyree Nichols. This has been a personal priority for you. But listen to what House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan said just a few days ago on this.
0: Well, I don't know that there's any law that can stop that evil that we saw that is just, I mean, just difficult to watch. Um, what strikes me is just the lack of respect for human life. Um, so I don't know that any law, any training, any reform is going to change. You know, they, 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 this man was handcuffed. They continued to beat him.
3: Given that you're going to need House Republicans to get something done on a national level, is it a futile effort?
8: Listen, I agree with um, Chairman Jordan uh, in in terms of what happened, sadly, to Tyree Nichols. It was indefensible, reprehensible. There's just no excuse for it. And I also agree with the premise that we cannot mandate virtue by law. Yeah. That just isn't going to happen. But still, we should take an honest look at policing in America today and acknowledge the obvious. We all want someone to answer that 911 call who is a trained professional, will keep us safe. Secondly, we know by video camera evidence that things are happening in policing, which are just absolutely indefensible in America. And third, there are things we can do to step forward for screening future police, uh, monitoring those who are in service uh, in in law enforcement, and making certain that we have standards of conduct uh, that are acknowledged to be sensible. The things we've seen, the evidence we've seen, the videotape is just a reminder that we cannot stand by and let this go without having a purpose and a course of action ourselves.
3: So the effort will continue. Senator Dick Durbin, thank you for all the time this morning.
8: Thank you.
4: The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, one step closer to revealing its new 2023 class. We're gonna tell you who some of the nominees are. That's next.
2: Alright, this just in, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame revealing its nominees for its 2023 class. I'm never gonna
11: dance
25: again.
2: George Michael, Missy Elliott, Sheryl Crow, Kate Bush, other nominees that are included, Cindy Lauper, my favorite Willie Nelson, and The White Stripes. Pretty good class, I would say. Yeah,
4: that's the music I know. I don't know any like all of the. She was, the new you stuff. were
2: literally singing every, every single, single can I say one. That word. Cheryl Crow song, I made my parents play every day on the way to lunch. Like oh, that's right. I agree.
4: Well, this morning, authorities inspecting a massive humpback whale after it was found dead on the beach in uh, New York's Nassau County. It marks the 10th time a whale has washed ashore in New York and New Jersey since December. <laughs> now, scientists are working to learn what is causing this. In Jason Carroll live for us, at Lido Beach on Long Island, with more. Jason. Good morning what do we know about this what's going on here i mean
33: you know don it's always sad when something like this happens as for what happened out here yesterday the whale that you were talking about was buried right back here over that mound he was so massive it took much of the day to to get him buried scientists have a pretty good idea of what killed him as for those other whales that is still under investigation All Long Island beachgoers could do is stand and helplessly watch as heavy equipment moved a humpback whale that had perished and washed ashore. It was found Monday morning and was nicknamed Luna.
23: I just hope they're treating that carcass with some dignity. I mean,
19: it was a living thing, and it's just very somber. I hope they can find out what happened, too, because I know there's been a lot of whales lately.
33: Late Tuesday, a team of about 20 biologists conducted a necropsy on the humpback. They determined it was more than 40 feet long, weighed some 29,000 pounds. It was a male that was about 40 years old. Experts say they normally live twice that long.
26: It was amazing to see this creature of this magnitude on this beach. And then after a couple seconds you say, and now it's, it's perished. Don Clavin
33: is the Hempstead Town Supervisor. So what's going to be up here?
27: That's that's where the the, the when the barrel will be. They've already moved the first piece up there. Uh, the second
16: piece
33: is uh, probably after the uh, autopsy is done. And lastly, probably the fin. That's one of the larger pieces that we brought up here. It's not the first or the second case of a beach whale along New York, New Jersey's coast. As of late, according to the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, some 10 whales have beached themselves since last December. In this case, NOAA really released a statement saying preliminary findings indicate that a vessel strike is the likely cause of death. However, we will know more once the results of the samples become available. In the past, NOAA has concluded that vessel strikes and climate change represent some of the leading threats to humpback whales. Though some lawmakers and environmental groups question if offshore wind farm development could also be playing a role.
2: I really do believe you don't want to destroy the environment to save the environment. Facts matter. And if we don't have the facts, let's go about trying to find out how to get them.
33: But NOAA disputes a connection, saying there have been elevated humpback deaths along the Atlantic coast since 2016, before much offshore and wind farm development took place.
5: NOAA is a science-based agency, and so we really go by the facts and the evidence. And right now, there is no evidence to suggest that there is offshore wind activity that is linked to any of these whale deaths.
33: As for Luna, he was buried not far from where he washed ashore. And Don, one thing that both scientists and environmentalists can agree on, they want to get to the bottom of what's been killing all the humpback whales out here.
4: That's excellent. excellent report. Jason Carroll and West Lido Beach in New York. Thank you very much for that. Beautiful, beautiful animals. And someone needs they need to get to the bottom of
3: it. Why it's happening. Yeah.
4: All right. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. We appreciate it. We're going to see you tomorrow. Uh, the breaking news. Remember, Tom Brady retiring for good. We'll see if it sticks. I'm sure they'll have more coming up right now on the CNN
3: Newsroom. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level.